This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. This episode is sponsored by LifeAid. Now, LifeAid has several products, one of which I want to highlight because it's so pertinent to you, the sleep-deprived audience. Their product, FocusAid, is a healthy alternative to the energy drinks that I see so many of us relying on because we are exhausted. There's no other way of putting it. These energy drinks that I've seen are putting our men and women into hospitals with arrhythmias, GI distress, adding to anxiety, certainly affecting mental health. So what Focus Aid has done is they've removed all the terrible ingredients and used natural, healthy ingredients, natural sweeteners, and replaced the high levels of caffeine with a nootropic. And what a nootropic is, is a supplement for your brain. As a first responder, I can attest that this then allows you to be alert on a call, but when it is time to rest, to go to bed, whether it's the end of the shift, whether it's after a call, you're actually able to not only sleep, but get a better quality of sleep as well. So an incredible product I urge you guys to try and LifeAid has reached out to you, the audience, to offer you a discount of 15% if you use the discount code SHIELD at lifeaidbevco.com. So that's L-I-F-E-A-I-D-B-E-V-C-O.com. Use the code SHIELD, which is S-H-I-E-L-D. And please try this. It's going to end up being less expensive than the drinks that you're using and I'm telling you right now, it's an incredible product. And please reach out and let me know what you think. Welcome to episode 266 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing. And this week, it is my absolute honor to bring to you Chief Pat Kenny. Now, I met Pat in San Antonio at the Rosecrans Florian Symposium, which is an incredible mental health conference for first responders. And then we actually talked at length a few weeks later when I was in my car over the phone. Now, we were on the Bluetooth. My wife was next to me. 
And I was literally in tears hearing him tell his story. Now, these tears were part sadness and empathy, but also part elation from some of the positive sides of some of the dark sides of his stories and what he's doing now. So an incredibly powerful interview that will certainly let a lot of people out there know they're not alone, but also he's a real beacon of light for what you can do with that trauma to turn it into positivity and create resilience within yourself. So before we get to the interview, please take a moment, just go to your podcast app, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Five-star rating really does make this more visible to other people looking for this podcast and episodes like this one with Pat certainly need to be heard by everyone. And with that being said, also take your social media, email, word of mouth, carrier pigeon and share these incredible episodes. This story in particular is going to resonate very deeply with many, many people. So without further ado, I introduce to you Chief Pat Kenny. Enjoy. So Pat, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, thanks very much, James. I look forward to speaking to you and hopefully to provide some information, maybe even just some hope for people who are out there that are struggling in areas dealing with mental health, either their own or or in their own organizations or families. Thank you so much. I mean, your story is incredibly powerful. And obviously, as a you know, a veteran of this service as well. I think there's going to be a lot of information for people to take from this. Um, first question, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? So I'm the uh, fire chief in Western Springs, Illinois. Western Springs is about 17 miles west of the city of Chicago. Brilliant. And going back to the very beginning then, so where were you born and what was your family dynamic? Okay, so I was born in the city of Chicago. Um, Some people will laugh and say, you have an accent. They'll say, I have an accent too. You sound like a guy from the south side of Chicago. And that's true. Um, I grew up around uh, Midway Airport there, um, very Irish Catholic family. Both my mom and dad were born in Ireland, Uh, actually lived about 15 miles apart from each other in Ireland, never met there, met at a dance in Chicago. Um, Both were travelers to the United States with the intention to send money back to help out their families at home. Um, Only child, which sounds completely contradiction to an Irish Catholic. (laughs) It does. Um, I think that my parents were like, okay, one's enough when we've had you, but they actually had me later in life, especially at that point. Um, So I grew up on the South side. There were, I always joke about, there were three pictures in our living room. There was a picture of John F. Kennedy. There was a picture of the Pope. Uh, and there was a picture of the original Mayor Daly. Uh, you didn't say anything negative about any of those three. You genuflected when you walked past those pictures. I never knew why, but you did. Um, and it was it was powerful. So faith was very strong in our family, and I, Irish heritage also was very, very strong. Um, grew up also very blessed. I had a godmother, um, my Aunt Mary, who lost her husband at a very early age, and she lived with us from the time I was an infant all the way until I was 25. And to be very honest, if if people like who I am today, um, she should get the credit for that because due to a number of circumstances, she really ended up raising me. So I came up through that family, um, spoiled, only child. But of course, if you're an Irish mother and you have an only child who's a male, your thinking is eventually and hope is he'll become a priest. So that was kind of my mom. She had already kind of mapped it out for me. And um, so growing up, um, 
part of that spoiled part was consistently in my family, you were shown love by being fed. And so about the time I was in fourth grade, I was pretty large. And so when your name is Pat and you're fat, it's a little ugly in terms of a lot of the grief that you take. My dad was an all Ireland hurler, which is a sport in Ireland um, that's revered and a great athlete. And uh, by fourth grade, I'm not showing any of that. I'm having trouble walking and chewing gum. And uh, thank goodness somewhere around sixth grade, I think God felt sorry for me and said, we better have some of these things kick in. And uh, I became very athletic and um, had a chance to go to high school on a, on a scholarship for uh, baseball and football. And that was kind of my dream is that here's where I'm going to go. And, and I had already kind of in my mind mapped out my future of what I was going to do. I was going to be a professional, either baseball player or football player. I actually even had figured out that there were two different kinds of cheerleaders who watched baseball or football. And so I'd have the prettiest girl for the baseball game and the prettiest girl for the football game. Not necessarily the same girl, but <laughs> uh, so I was, I'm good. And there would be my dad sitting in the stands and would be um, my hero watching me. And um, in the summer between eighth grade and, and freshman year, when I was supposed to go and then hopefully obtain these scholarships, um, I was in a car accident. I was actually going to buy a new pair of cleats and um, was on my way coming back from the store with my buddies. And there were two lanes of traffic stopped and we cut through the middle of the traffic. What we didn't realize was there was a gravel shoulder on the one side and a car decided he didn't want to wait and came speeding up that side shoulder to make a turn. Um, I never saw him. The only thing I remember is a yellow streak. And um, so he caught me. The front bumper caught my right knee and smashed into the left one. And I luckily spun along the car rather than going under the car. And I remember waking up looking at the tailpipe going, ah, oh, it's just a bad dream. And sat up and then saw this crowd and realized I couldn't feel my anything from my waist down. Um, took me to the hospital and ended up that my right knee was shattered in 12 places, my left in eight. I tore the ligaments in my left knee pretty, pretty bad. Um, and they didn't have arthroscopic surgery back then. So it was, you were in these toe to uh, hip casts um, and loads of rehab. And, and obviously the dream of playing competitive sports, especially at any kind of professional level, that was out the door. They weren't sure at that point that I would walk again. So physical therapy started, uh, some depression for me at that point was obviously there. Um, I started high school, the first day of high school was Halloween, which when you're a freshman coming in and everybody else has kind of been through the whole freshman thing and you are now the target, it was a little bit ugly on the crutches and um, but I was getting better. And uh, and I was starting to get determined. Um, that wonderful Aunt Mary was that voice. Um, and people do have the power. Sometimes I hear people say, well, one voice can't carry a group. Yeah, you can. Um, she did. She was like, you can do this. You, you can come back. You can make it. And I was starting to get a little bit more hopeful. The day after Christmas, my dad loved duck. That was kind of the, the famous dinner that my mom always made on special occasions for for him, I wasn't a big fan, but he loved it. And um, he could not eat his dinner. And um, I heard him then in the bathroom a little while later throwing up. And uh, my dad was very rarely ever sick. So I knocked on the bathroom door and, and he opened the door. And I remember vividly in the kitchen or in the bathroom sink were uh, blood clots. 
And I was like, Dad, I go, we, we need we need to call the ambulance. And he was like, Yeah, yeah, you probably do. Now, I should have known that that was the first red flag because my dad never went to the doctor. He old country Irish didn't trust the doctors, didn't want to go. So the thought of him calling an ambulance, um, huge shock at that point. But we did. Chicago Fire came, loaded him on the ambulance or on the stretcher, and as they're heading out the door. He blocked the door with his arms. My dad was a big guy at that point. He had been very athletic, but now was very heavy, and uh, but huge and strong. He blocked the door with his arms, and I remember he got tears in his eyes. And I had only seen my dad cry one other time, and it was when he lost his brother. And he looked at me, and he said, I'll never be back here again. I was like, no, Dad. I go, it's just I know you're a little scared, but it's just they're going to go to the hospital and fix you up. This is fine. So he went. Went to the hospital on the 26th of December, and on January 1st, he died of a massive hemorrhage in his stomach. And it turned out that he had had stomach cancer. Um, never said a word, never went to the doctor. Um, when you went back and put things together later, realized that he had been drinking pretty heavily the last six months, when he, especially on the weekends, but would drink when he came home at night from work, too. And the doctor said, yeah, he was trying to kill the pain. He said, I can't imagine how much much misery he was in because he said we were, were going to have to take out his entire stomach and try to treat this. Um, that would have been the first line of defense. It was so far along. So in this span of really from July to January, I had gone from having this entire my life mapped out in this most positive, heroic version um, and my hero in the stands to not wondering if I'd ever be able to play anything again, let alone walk. And, and the guy that I really wanted to see me do it the most was gone. Um, and I was crushed completely. Went back to school after my dad's um, funeral. And about a week afterwards, I went to the bus that we took from the high school, went by the cemetery. So I got off the bus on a very cold, it was, I remember it was a bright, sunny day. Um, it had snowed the day before. It was really, really cold outside. The wind chill was in the teens. And I got off the bus with my bag of books. And, and the walk from the bus stop down along the street to get into the cemetery and back to where he was was a mile, maybe, maybe a little bit more than that. And I hadn't been doing a whole lot of walking for any distances at that point. Um, and I didn't care. So I just walked all the way back to where his grave was. And it was still where you could see it easily because it was the only brown dirt around the snow. And put my bag down and said, I came here to die. And I laid down to commit suicide. I figured if I laid there long enough, it'd be cold enough and I'd die. And I always tell people who look at suicide as being a very selfish act and what were they thinking of they had a wonderful wife and children they had a wonderful job they had a wonderful all this other stuff i can just tell you standing back now as a parent and a spouse to think that i could lose my spouse unexpectedly in a five-day period and then maybe two weeks later have my kid my only child kill themselves the devastation that that would do but I can honestly tell you that was never on my radar, not even a thought. All I thought was I'm in this incredible pain. My life is nothing but black with no hope. And the one person that I cared about the most was somewhere that I really believed and I wanted to go there. And I didn't care if there were ramifications, I didn't care, but I just needed to get out of this pain 
and I wanted to see him again. So I laid down and very peaceful, very calm. And you hear people who have committed suicide. Those that saw them earlier that particular day were like, I could have never told that this was coming. They seemed very happy. Oh, sure they were because they were relieved that they weren't going to be in this pain anymore. And that's how I was. I wasn't scared. I wasn't like, okay, here we go. And I felt myself kind of getting cold and drowsy. And and all of a sudden, for the first time, I heard my dad's voice. And it was like, you need to get up. And I remember thinking, this is great. I am close to passing over. I'm already starting to hear things. This is... And then the next time I heard it, it was how I had remembered it for the 14 years of my life when he was pissed. It was, you need to get up and get out of there. And I remember sitting up like, whoa, and looking over at that grave. And it was like, you need to get the hell out of here. So I get, tried to get back to my feet. Now I was really frozen. Put the bag over my back. And I'm like, I got a long way to go to get out of here. And this push that was like... I can't let him down. I can't let him down. I got to get out of here. And I was scared to death. I wouldn't at that point. So I went from being very peaceful that I wanted to die to being scared to death. I was going to die probably because I was really afraid if I faced him on the other side, it was not going to be a happy. <laughs> so I make my way out of the cemetery back then, no cell phones or anything, just pay phones. And I called and I got a hold of my, my aunt Mary. And I said, I got off the bus to go see dad. Can you come get me? And she said, absolutely. And came and got me and to the day I died, I never told them, either my mom or my Aunt Mary, the real reason I went to the cemetery that day. And part of it was because I was ashamed of what I had done, what I had thought about. Could I have used an awful lot of counseling? Oh brother, could I have? Um, could it have helped me with some of the pain I went through in high school, my own journey of feeling bad about myself and who I was and no purpose. And oh boy, it would have been an incredible help. But back then, as there is now, there was this incredible stigma about it's it's a weakness. Um, here I am now the man of the house at 14. So you certainly can't be weak. I was caught in that and certainly caught in, I didn't want to let my dad down. And so I w- went through this journey myself of thinking about suicide of working my way through why I rationalized and I couldn't tell anybody, nor could I seek any help. Um, and I think that that's, that was a meant to be. I truly do believe that everything in life happens for a reason. Um, I don't have to like the reason. Most of the times I don't understand the reason. Sometimes I do. Sometimes in hindsight, I see back. And now, given what I do today, I see why that journey. I see why the tragedy. I see why the getting to that desperate feeling of wanting to take my own life because when somebody says to me, I felt that way and everybody's feelings different, but to get to that desperate point, I get it. I get it. And there's no judgment because I I was there and I can see how you can get to that point. And how old were you then? 14. Yeah. So, so that, that, I mean, just listen to your, your, your journey, your, Firstly, I want to go back to the the fourth grade. So my little boy is kind of going through something at the moment where he's the smallest in his school year and the lack of self-esteem is is crushing. Like he's a he's a gold-hearted little kid. He's actually, you know, a good-looking little boy. I had a face like a smacked ass as they say, but 
But, um, you know, I was a very <laughs> awkward child with dry skin and like a white man's afro and messed up teeth. <laughs> but he, you know, but he doesn't even have that. But my God, when, when these kids are down and it's, it's so hard to pull them back out. So mentally for you, when you were quote unquote fat pat, what was that for you like mentally before you had that growth spurt? I used to end up um, really getting sick a lot before I would even go to school. I had was taken to the doctor loads of times for wondering if I had a stomach disorder or whatever. And it was, now I look back and it was anxiety um, because if I was afraid to walk into that school. I was afraid I was going to get pushed up against the locker. I was afraid I was going to be ridiculed. And then you're, uh, for me, I was caught in the, kind of that conflict of academically, I could do pretty well, which almost was the curse of death. You'd have been better if you were a D student, because at least you'd be consistent with, okay, he's, he's clumsy and, and he's uncoordinated and he's stupid. So, okay, well, well, this kid's just a loser. But because you could do well academically, you stood out for the wrong reasons. And everything was judged at that point on your athletic ability. And I remember just looking in the mirror and feeling really bad about myself. And I learned a pattern at that point. And I don't blame anybody. I don't blame my mom or anybody for it. It was I learned the pattern of really, truly, when I get emotional, doing emotional eating. And I think that just really contributed to getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It was, it was like, okay, I'd come home and I could eat your dinner, my dinner, the, the neighbor's dinner. It didn't matter. And it wasn't to eat to be full. I think it was eat to be comfortable. And it wasn't until the cycle switched that I was getting support and getting respect from my peers that all of a sudden I didn't need that as much. I can tell you, however, to this day, I'm 62, to this day, when I'm under stress, everything you could put in front of me tastes tremendous, even something I can't stand. And that's when my red light goes on and go, whoa. What is going on with you? There's that, that's one of my own self-indicators now. Yeah. I mean, you see, I think that's a big part of the obesity epidemic that we have at the moment is that emotional attachment to food. You know, if we're happy and we're celebrating, let's go out and get dinner. If you're sad and commiserating, let's go get ice cream and, you know, whatever your alcohol right. of choice is. And, and I think that that's a very underestimated thing for us and children. And it drives me crazy that then when, you know, in our schools that even though we're aware of all the, the health, you know, issues, especially you, know, you and I in the profession that we're in, that we're still the options for these kids in these school are still so bad. So, you know, we're just accelerating this process where I would assume that at least when, when you were younger, it was probably a lot more natural type food and probably the dinner ladies were actually cooking it instead of the processed crap that these kids have these days. Yeah, correct. You were and your mom made your lunch to take to school. And for a lot of us that when we went to school, lived close enough from school that you came home and got a regular meal at lunchtime. And so it wasn't it wasn't the same. Um, grab a candy bar here, or grab this here and keep you going. It was like, yeah, you were supposed to sit down and eat a real meal. That's true. Yeah. Now going to, to the graveside at 14 years old, it's something that I, again, in this journey of you know, learning about mental health that I've been on, Two things. Firstly, like you said, oh, that was so cowardly. How could they do that? You know, that's that's a chicken shit move. And you start speaking to these men and women that have been literally either about to or like in Kevin Hines, who I had on, um, has actually done it. He just survived jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And and the the feeling that they're a burden as well. So it's a selfless thing in their mind you know for you got the like you said the darkness that 
just absolute misery. But then there's also that my family will be better off without me. And that's the thing I think that's very misunderstood by a lot of people is it's not a cowardly thing. They're, they truly think they're doing something good for their family. Obviously, the reality is it's the polar opposite. Agreed. And I it really the light bulb went on for me. I was fortunate to hear a lecture by Dr. Thomas Joyner and he talked about, he said, there's two psychological states that have to occur simultaneously to really put you into peril for suicide. And that is that you feel like you don't belong and you feel like you're a burden. And the final part is the ability to actually take your life. And he said, that's the scary part about first responders is you all took an oath that if there is a life to be saved, you're willing to put your life on the line. You're not you're going to fight against that instinct that I'm the most primary. He said, then you get those other two states. And if they occur together, you've got the trifecta. And you really are now right on the precipice of being able to take your life. And there's no question about that. I think in talking that that's a consistent theme with people who have gotten to a point where it's like, I, I didn't successfully go through but I, I really did feel sincerely like, well, they'll be better off without me, whether it's looking at it financially, well, there's an insurance policy and that'll take care of them. And instead of us paying all these bills to try and deal with my mental health, they now are going to have a lump sum of money or it's the emotional impact that it takes. And, you know, they're not going to have to worry about that phone call anymore. And they're not going to have to worry if they walk in my room, if I overslept, that I overdose it. It gives them some peace. And it truly is. I, I, the people that I've read about and some of the people that I've talked to, you realize that there's a tremendous love in their heart. It's just they don't love themselves. And that's the hardest part. What we see on the outside about those people of their talent and their beauty and, and the things that they God gave them gifts to bring to this earth. We don't they don't see any of those. They look in, the, in that mirror and they see nothing but pain and suffering and ugliness. And so. If you can put yourself in their shoes just to try for a second, you can see where it'd be like, I don't, I don't want to look at this anymore. And I don't want to force the people I love to look at this anymore. And I think that's I think that's right on the button. That's where it goes. Yeah. And, and you said about that third element. What terrifies me as well is you take a, you know, a mentally healthy person up onto a 10 story building and then get them close to the edge. There is that giant invisible hand that's pushing you back. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Right. <laughs> Get back from the edge of this building. And I think that, you know, obviously the the depression side is one thing, but with our community, with, you know, so many of these these men and women out there, the sleep deprivation, when you introduce that, and that appears to me like it breaks down that invisible hand, where now that resistance to it, that innate physiological thing that we have the the desire to, to reproduce and then thrive so we can protect our offspring and you know live a, a full life i think that's what humans are supposed to do that that protective mechanism is just broken down and that's what terrifies me as we've created an environment these men and women that are already seeing trauma that they have to process but then we're putting them in an environment that's setting them up for failure both physically and mentally yeah, I think the the environmental and, and preparing them is such a critical factor because for any of us, if you think about when you're really overtired, you, you ended up on a, a long trip for a vacation, take something positive and you ended up with some flight delays or whatever, you're irritable, your tolerance level for things is incredibly reduced. And so then you take people who are in a critical situation and are feeling already suffering some 
of the anxiety or depression. And so their tolerance level for how much they're willing to put up with is significantly reduced. And I think then that makes the choices of how to get healthier more limited and can end up being, there really appears to only be one choice here to get significant relief and to finally get ultimate relief. And that's to walk through that door and take my life. And you're right. I think we don't from the very beginning indoctrinate our folks. And regardless of what first responder you are, I think it's universal. When we bring people into our profession, right at their orientation, and I don't care if you're a volunteer combination or career department, small, big, doesn't matter. We don't in the orientation say, you're going to see some really bad shit. And it's going to affect you because we are recruiting people who care. We want you at two o'clock in the morning when you've been to this house for the third time and you're exhausted and grandma fell out of the wheelchair again and all you're going to do is put her back in. It's okay to be pissed on the way to this call. It is not okay to be pissed once you clear that threshold. That's your grandmother and that's how we want you to act. And all of a sudden they go to that call and they end up that this happens to be the time that no, she's not alive anymore. And they've lost her. And I've talked to crews that were like, yeah, it used to be a pain to go to this house. And then I felt genuinely really bad when she passed. But we don't talk about that in the orientation. We don't talk about the fact that you're going to see burn victims. We don't talk about the fact your children are going to lose their lives and you're going to have to look at their parents and go, I couldn't do anything. I, I was helpless. And that's always been my big analogy that I use is when you start in this vocation, you get a cape. And that cape allows you in conjunction with the big guy upstairs to every once in a while make a difference. But you can't do it all the time. Sometimes you completely fail. We don't tell them that in the orientation either. We, we, we are going to be brave. You're going to be strong. People are going to love you and you're going to make a difference all the time. You know, you're basically going to be a superhero is what we tell them. We don't tell them the reality because if we did, we would have some people would get up after the orientation and go, this is not for me. This is not what I thought it was. And that would be great. But we don't. And then we get them into our academies and we don't do it there either. We talk about mental health. It's how to respond to the mental health patient, not how to take care of your own mental health. We don't normalize it. We tell them, you know, we're going to teach you the correct ways to lift so you don't injure your back. But realize that not every situation are you going to be able to do that. Somebody has a full arrest next to the toilet. You're not going to be able to do proper lifting techniques. You're going to do everything you can to get that person out of there so you can start to do life-saving techniques. And if it does, you might hurt your back. And if you do, here's what you do. Got to first of all, notify somebody right away. So we make sure we've got the paper chain so you're legally covered. And then we're going to send you to a doctor who understands what we do in this profession. And they're going to look at you. And if it's a significant back injury, they may say, you know, you might need a muscle relaxer. So we're going to give you some medication. And you know what? You could use probably two weeks of physical therapy to get you stronger with the ultimate goal being to return you to the job they understand at a 100% level. But we don't do that when we talk to them about mental health. Hey, you know what? You're going to see bad stuff. You might have nightmares. You might be able to sleep. You might start drinking more. You might start eating more. You might start eating less. You might fight with your spouse more. And when that happens, that's normal. And here's the doctor that you go to who understands what you do for a living. And they may give you medication or they may not. They may give you therapy or they may not. With the ultimate goal being to return you to 100% of who you were to come back and do what you love. We don't do any of that until the shit hits the fan. We do no human 
pre-planning. We're great about these assessment centers. And I, I, I'm an assessor. I've sat in them on the other side of the table as well as being the candidate. And it's like, all right, there's three people on the engine and here's your scenario. You know, there's a train who hits a car and then you get there and find out that it's a hazmat and it's a rollover and the car that they hit is four nuns who had two orphans with them. And um, there's a big festival going on th- during town that's only a half a block away and this huge cloud just hit it. There's three of you. Fix it. And it's like, okay, and we train for that. We plan for that. It's those superhuman acts. But we don't do any human pre-planning that goes, okay, you're going to have a guy who's going to walk in and go, I was just told that my eight-year-old daughter was diagnosed with bone cancer. What the hell do I do? We, we, we don't train on that. We don't look at that. We don't, we don't have a system in place that says, okay, let me – offer you some resources that can help you with that. Not that I can not fix it. Don't try to fix it because you're not trained to fix it. But listen with empathy, listen with sympathy and say, I can't, man, I can't even imagine being in your shoes. And then know what you can do to help. We don't do that. We wait until the person is circling the drain. We misjudge what their actions and symptoms are about just being a plain ass to people. And we immediately say, we got to get rid of this person instead of knowing, oh, wait a minute, whoa, this could be this. I I always kid about, you know, if you ask any firefighter across the world, are you okay? The 100% answer is going to be, yep, good, chief, I got it. You know, they could be missing an arm, their ear got ripped, (laughs) blinded, and they're, okay, I'm good, I'm good, I got it. But if you ask the same person, is there anything I can do for you? The fear in doing that is they may take you up on it. And then you feel like you've got to go, can we start all over again? Are you okay? Because I understand that. I don't understand the second part. And it's our fault as a service that we don't train them in that. And we don't normalize it to take the stigma out of it. Um, I had a wonderful firefighter in Michigan when I was was doing one of my son's talks. Um, after I got done with the talk, he said, you know, I on my shift, um, I have a female firefighter and um, she has diabetes. And honestly, James, I thought he was going down. What are women doing in the fire service? Blah, blah, blah. Not the way he was going at all. He said, you know, and she gives her her insulin and at the kitchen table and we don't we don't miss a beat. We're having breakfast. We're just keep talking. He said, so the next shift I came and I dumped my pills on the table. And he said, everybody looked and went, Mikey, what, what, what's up with the pills? He said, well, I'm, I'm bipolar. And they just looked. And one of the guys said, well, what's up with showing that now? He said, well, Linda over there, when she gives herself the insulin, nobody thinks about that. She's got to take that insulin in order to be stable physically because she's got these chemical things going on in her body. She's got no control over. I have the same thing. And somebody said, well, what happens if you don't take your medicine? He goes, well, sometime in the middle of the night, I'll get an ax and put it in one of your skulls. And immediately <laughs> everybody starts looked and froze. And he said, I'm sitting you. I'm, I, that's, but he goes, it's the same thing. So why would this be any different? I went, Oh my God. I said, you should have been, you should have been the head of some university in terms of dealing with psychological trauma. I go to lay it out like that. It's just perfect. And that I guarantee the people, the men and women sitting at that table had a whole new appreciation for what is mental health and what is a mental illness and making that analogy was was powerful and we just don't do that enough we don't tie we don't make it strong enough in our own people's minds that somebody who's dealing with a mental health challenge it is a physical illness it is not a choice it is not a weakness no more than 
for diabetes no more than somebody's got high blood pressure or no more than somebody is unfortunately diagnosed with cancer. It's something that ends up happening in their body and they need help. And the more they resist that help, the farther along the disease gets. And in both the physical realm of cancer as well as in the physical realm of mental health, you can get to the point of where you're terminal and there is no help for you. And either you're going to pass away from natural causes or you're going to accelerate the process. Yeah. And, and what you've hit on, I agree 100% as far as you know entry into this profession. And, and like you said, the psych discussions are, oh, someone might try and be combative so you have to tie into the stretcher and here's some defensive tactics. And you know, there's no real... Um, you know, discussion of that. And one thing that I've seen, having been fortunate enough to do four application processes for departments that I work for, is I would do a crazy psych written test. And I say crazy because it doesn't make any sense at all. And I, I joke about this in other podcasts, but it's true. It's like, you know, do you like flowers? Do you like kittens? Do you like puppies? Right. Do you like molesting kids? Do you like zebras? Like, wait, wait, <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, but yep. that's what it is. And there's thousands of these questions. And then the polygraph, which is the biggest smoke and mirrors bullshit. If anyone actually researches a polygraph, it's a complete, it's basically to fake you out to get you to confess to something. That's what it is. I mean, there's no other way around it. And you take the money from those two ridiculous tests and you put that same money into Everyone that you have said, okay, I think this is someone we want to hire, and you put them through three, five counseling sessions during orientation, academy, whatever it is. So firstly, you get to offload trauma because it's Pat coming in who lost his dad, almost took his, his own life at a graveside. You're bringing in that trauma before you put that badge on your chest. I've got sure. people on here that have been molested as kids, grew up in drug houses, alcoholism. I mean, all these things. So you're offloading stuff at the front door. And you're now creating a rapport exactly like you said with a counselor who gets us. So there's never the question like, who am I going to talk to? I know who I'm going to talk to. Mrs. Stevens, the lady that I, you know, spoke to when I first got hired. And that mm -hmm. I think is, you know, literally the, I don't see how the budget would be any different. If you're paying someone to do a polygraph and an entire psych evaluation, turn that into just, Two, three or four counseling sessions so you have that rapport at the front door and then as a recipient you realize that that's normalized like from day one if you need to speak to someone you have this connection now i think and i think you, the other thing you hit on it's really on the button is because you meet that person right on the front end you immediately there there a rapport starts one of the things i see was when an organization identifies yeah we got a hole here we got to take care of it all of a sudden there's you're bringing therapists in to do ride-alongs and you know how firefighters are immediately it's like okay which one of us here is nuts and who are they trying to get rid of i mean there's no no rapport there the poor person is up against the wall they're the outsider and because again they weren't introduced as part of the staff when you stood there in the orientation and went oh, okay i might at some point need to go talk to her or and just as importantly and that's why that 13th Life Safety Initiative is important when it talks about firefighters and their families need psychological support. And if my wife needs to talk to somebody, that's, see that lady over there, hon? That's who we're going to call. So you've made the connection in the beginning. In, in I've, I've talked to chaplains that run into the same thing. Yeah, they brought me in after a horrific event. 
And we're like, okay, you're now our chaplain. No training, no, no, nothing about the culture, not about that they had this horrible call or a line of duty. It's like, well, okay, just because you're a clergy, you're supposed to be a mind reader and you're going to fix everything. It's like, no, you haven't introduced this man or woman. You haven't made them part of the team. You haven't put it under normal circumstances. You haven't made that communication opportunity that says at some point you may want to talk to this person. It may be because you want your kid to get baptized. It may have nothing to do with anything traumatic, but you know that's father so-and-so or that's minister so-and-so, whoever it is. We we don't we don't see that as the leg of their journey. Somehow they're supposed to come out unscathed. And it's just there isn't anybody I've ever talked to. When I have a room of firefighters, regardless of how many years they've been on the job, and I say, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to go to one place you never want to go back to again. And I say, open your eyes. Not two seconds later. And I go, every one of you just went someplace. And some of you went loads of places. So I said, we know this happens. So why aren't we doing something about it that says we're going to make this more normal and try and treat it at the level when it occurs as opposed to when it becomes this huge issue and this huge physical illness that now is a struggle to try to get under control or try to eradicate. Yeah. yeah. And I know when that that uh, question that everyone dreads as a firefighter is, you know, what's the worst thing that you've seen? And I've only got 14 career years under my belt so a fraction of what you've got but the answer isn't oh there's this thing it's like well which one there's a there's a rolodex of memories and and i'm very fortunate i honestly think that between the exercise and some other positive coping mechanisms that i've had in built for a long time this podcast is absolutely hands down therapy for me because i get to have discussions like this twice a week but you know if i allow my mind to go back then i mean again which one you know be more specific tell me tell me what you want to see, you know hear about horrific with children with you know with burns with decapitations and i'll give you i'll give you answers for all of those and you know i'm like i said mid-career in the fire service so there's people that have you know done double the service i've done done you know probably even higher call loads you know in in eras of of history where there was a lot more trauma violence whatever it was so to to act like a first responder, a doctor, a mortician, you know, a, a dispatcher is not going to be affected by these is is the true insanity of this whole thing, the true mental health, you know, question. And, and and the same way as we need to hold our fitness standards high, we need to hold our mental standards high, and that means creating an environment for us to, you know, to select mentally and physically resilient men and women at the front door but then create an environment for them to thrive through their career, not beat them down with understaffing, insane work weeks, and, and you know no fitness standards and no mental health. No, I had to smile when you were talking about the polygraphs and the, and the psychologicals, because I when I came on the job, you got, a, you got a psychological, and then when I went for promotion as lieutenant, I got another psychological, and then when I went promotion as a deputy chief, I got another psychological, and after that, when I finally said, Okay, when I came in here, I was saying, so if on this third psychological, you show that I'm imbalanced, it's a duty disability because I was just fine when I came in the door and I go, now you're sending me through these stupid things that says that I can't do it anymore. And my mom used to, actually my degree from college is in psychology. And she used to go with her deep Irish brogue, what a waste of money that was. Intelligent people run out of burning buildings and you go in. Um, so it's so true that if you look at what are you doing to people and you get them prepared for what they're going to face and find out what exactly I brought that pain with me, the, the 
Second call I ever had in my career was a young mom who hung herself. And we were there the day before, same address, for a woman choking. And it was this woman choking on a sandwich. In hindsight, what ended up happening was she was trying to make it look like she accidentally died and her sister found her. And so the next day she hung herself. And I remember vividly down the stairs into that basement, running through the door and seeing this poor woman hanging. I vividly remember the brown paneling, the three pictures of her kids because when and she was long gone, I remember there was a stool right next to her. She could have saved herself at any point and she had her fists clenched like I am not going to finish. I'm not going to stop finishing this this time. I'm going to make it. But I can honestly tell you that day I was as angry as I could be. I had a brand new baby, our first child. The kids are on their way home from school and I'm going, you selfish SOB. What what could be so bad that you would do this? Again, one some everything happens for a reason. It was like, right, Pat, think back now about How'd you feel at 14? And what was she going through and found out later that there was incredible numbers of trauma in her life? And I really do think in her mind that day, she thought her kids would be better off without her. And, but it being exposed to it and what it did, having already been down that road, just magnified everything. But there was no discussion afterwards other than she was, what a loser, and, and everybody just moved on. And, but nobody moved on. All three of us on that call had little kids. All three of us on that call had wonderful spouses. And it was like, we didn't even talk about it. Not a word at the table ever went on after that. Yeah. And then that's the problem is at that table, there were probably within your crew, at least people that, that were thinking about suicide, you know, that were struggling mentally. You, you'd obviously had your experience at 14 years old. So that's the sad thing is that the internal monologue of all the people around the table was probably very different than what was verbalized. And I think we could have learned a lot. Her her life loss would not have been something that was just a throwaway. There could have been a tremendous lesson learned there, if nothing else, than to provide the empathy at that table. So if somebody else down the road a year, two years, three years, 10 years from then was feeling that kind of desperation, go, we talked about that. How could a mom ever get to a point where she would leave her children? So, so opposite of what that mother's instinct is. Well, now you're sitting at the table going, well, I'm really thinking about killing myself and I got a wonderful wife and four kids and a grandkid on the way. And okay, I get it. I remember this woman. I got it. I got to go for help. We talked about this. Well, we didn't, we didn't talk about it. We, we missed that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing you get, you got to pull back the lens as well and, and reverse the question. Like how terrifying must it be to be about to take your life. I know, again, Kevin Hines mentions this the moment he stepped off the Golden Gate Bridge, he regretted it. And he yeah. was one of, you know, I think it's single digits of people that have ever survived. And he spent his life now telling his story. But, you know, it, it must be absolutely terrifying. So why are we having so many people that are getting to this point? And certainly in our profession, it seems to be increasing. The military, it seems to be increasing. Um, wildland firefighting, you know. And, and so what are these elements that are getting these people... Even, you know, you mentioned um, religion. I mean, that's the thing that, that very recently I realized. There are people who truly believe that they were most likely going to go to hell if they do this. That right. it's a sin. And they still would rather take that risk than live the hell that they're living now, you know. So that's what we should be asking. We should be having these discussions and then saying, what the hell are we doing wrong? Why are we having so many people that's so deeply depressed? 
And not even mentioning, you know, that the tip of the iceberg is suicide. The bulk of the iceberg is the drug addiction and the alcoholism and the porn addiction and the domestic violence and all these other manifestations of mental health that we're not even really discussing. Yeah, I think, and I, I really do think it's that, like that caught in the phone booth thing is, it, right, you go into the phone booth, you put on the cape, you come out, you save the day. But we only spend like 1% of our life total between professional and personal where you're out of the phone booth. You spend the other 99% in the phone booth. And we don't talk about those coping skills at all. We don't, we're really expecting our folks to be like made of concrete in you're always going to be successful. You're going to be successful in this department. You're going to be successful in your personal life. You're not going to have any, anybody who's ever been married realizes that it, it is, it is work. It's not what you see in a movie. If you have a successful relationship, there are bumps in the road that you have to both be committed to work through. It's the same thing in your career, something you love, just like you love your spouse. You are going to go through bumps. And how, what's the communication chain in order to be able to work through that? Every freaking line of duty depth report that you read, the number one issue always that's cited, I don't care what it is, talks about communication, communication, communication. And yet when we get to this topic, we shut it down. We turn off the frequency. We don't even turn the damn radio on. We're not going down this road. And I really believe it's not because the leadership, the fire service in general doesn't care it's because it scares the hell out of us and we haven't looked into it enough to know what to do. So instead we look the other way going, it'll go away. It'll go, it'll go away. And it's like, no, it's constantly following you. And eventually that hammer it's got gets bigger and bigger and it can crush you. And as leaders, when you talk about everyone goes home, never leave a brother or sister, we have to widen what that definition means. And you talk about physical fitness earlier and you're absolutely right on the button is we we now realize how important it is to do physical fitness. To what level you can do it in your organization, whatever. You got to do something. Something's better than nothing. And it's the same thing on the, on the mental health continuum is do something. Have something available. We don't have any money. We don't have the resources. We don't, I mean, 80% of the fire service is volunteer. We, we never get that in this country is, is that the major metropolitan areas, yeah, we're very blessed to have full-time fire departments, but most people have a volunteer organization and they don't have any money and they don't certainly have an EAP program. And so it's like, well, okay, well, we won't do anything. Well, no, maybe it's even a stronger push for you because as one chief said to me, realize chief in our little community, when the Cape doesn't work and we lose a child, we go to the wake and we go to the funeral and then we see that mom for the rest of our lives and all it keeps telling us is we didn't make a difference. What we signed up to do, we failed. And there's no way for them to process it. And, and my suggestion has always been, have you reached out to even your local high school counselors and go, is any counselor willing to just sit with us and talk about uh, what we do for a living and kind of get a feel anybody, any of the ministers, any church, I don't care what denomination, anybody is, do you have a counselor who does that professionally in your community? You might volunteer, find somebody, don't give me an excuse. You don't have it. You got to go seek it out because there are people who legitimately want to help us, but we just find excuses because it's complicated. And once you kick the door open and you say, you're going to tackle this animal, it's got an awful lot of tentacles and it's just like there's not one kind of cancer. There's not one kind of mental health challenge. And so trying to provide the best you can, nobody's ever going to have the perfect model. 
You can do everything 100% correct for your people, for your kids, for your spouse, for you, and can still end up taking your life. That People need to know that. That, that happens. There are people with terminal mental illnesses. But you can make a difference. You can, I, I use a movie clip when I'm talking sometimes, and I am, I am kind of a sucker for sappy movies and especially sports movies. And, and I use a, a clip from The Natural and, and the whole story is about a guy who makes a bad decision, a tremendous athlete, and has to pay for it and almost loses his dream. He loses the girl he was in love with in the beginning because of making this bad decision. And later on in the movie, when he's struggling, she shows up at a game. And James, I've watched this movie. No kidding. I'm embarrassed to tell you. I've probably seen it a hundred times. And it wasn't until my wife passed from cancer that I watched this movie and there's a scene where he's struggling and the heroine in it stands up. I've seen it a hundred times, but this time I saw it for, she was in all white. The crowd was very negative, all sitting. There was this bright light behind her, like she was an angel. And he looks back into the stands, kind of distracted and sees her, doesn't recognize who it is, but just sees this silhouette of this, one single person standing in this halo. And he obviously hits home run. It breaks the clock. It does all sorts of theatrical things. But later in the movie is what struck me. He said to her, why did you stand up that day? And she said, because I didn't want to see you fail. And that's the key is if we stand for people who are struggling, we give them a chance that there's hope, that we don't want to see them fail. Does that mean because she stood up? Well, he happened to hit the clock. He could have struck out too. It doesn't mean that if you stand up, you're going to save everybody, but it gives somebody looking into the stands of life that hope that you are going to provide the light, that there's still a way to get out of this. There's still a way to get better. There's still a way to get help. And you, again, we're back to that. I've normalized what you're feeling and here's the path you need to go to try and get better. Yeah. And that's, that's a, I think the the challenge for the, for us, the fire service, and obviously every other group of people that are listening, is it's a it's a double edged sword. We need obviously to create an environment that people are comfortable to reach out for, and we need to watch. And, and I think that so many of us that kind of become more aware of the mental health side look back and go, "Man, that guy that was always an asshole, I never even crossed my mind that maybe he was going through something." You know, and I know when I went through divorce, I was going through divorce. I was a single dad going through paramedic school, working in one of the busiest rescues in Orange County. And there were days when I was ready to, to kill someone, you know, yeah. and it's not that I'm a bad person, you know, but it was all that stress. And I was never at a, you know, a self-harm point. But, you know, we have to create an environment rather than making fun of that person or, like you said, trying to get rid of them. First, you say, are you OK? And then, But say it twice. You know, like you said, are right. you OK? No, I'm good. No, seriously, sit down. Here's, here's what I've been going through recently. Open the door, be vulnerable, and then, 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 you know, hopefully they will reach out. And then the other side is obviously then in that environment, the people hurting also have to have the courage to, to reach out as well. But those go hand in hand. And without one, you're never going to get the other. No, I agree. And, and they will watch to see how other people are treated. If you truly have uh, a welcoming environment to the whole issue of mental health, they will see people like our buddy Mikey who put his medication on the table. They will see people who will become role models and go, hey, in this organization, I, I, this is no different than any other illness that somebody's got and, and I do my job. Is there any, are there any other questions? And 
they then will be encouraged to go, okay, there aren't these ramifications that people like to make up about. You'll never get promoted. People will find out you'll get drummed off the job. Instead, it's like, no, I need to do something about this now because I don't want to get to that point down the road where I am so angry. And, and a great example you gave, and I appreciate you sharing that about your own journey is when I've done my son's talk, I, a number of times I'll have people come up afterwards and literally just had one happen recently where a chief said to me, you know, I, I've got a guy up on charges and I was getting ready to can because he's just had been a pain in our ass for the last 10 years. And he goes, I now realize from what you've said that I think he's just got a lot of demons he's struggling with. And if nothing else, we're going to try first. And if it turns out that he is just a cancer and shouldn't be here, then I'll go through with what I want to. But he goes, I was going to do that without doing any more of the homework and I need to do more homework. And I, so I think you're absolutely right is we don't look beyond the surface because we don't understand what's underneath the surface and it scares us to death. So we don't, we don't take the lid off. We just, we just take the whole can and throw it in the garbage and move on. It's like we lose so many people that way. I think good people in the service and sometimes when you throw that can away, the person then throws their life away. And we, 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 have, we haven't looked enough and hard enough about how do we try to keep people in our own service who have these illnesses and are still incredibly productive and powerful parts of our profession. Yeah. And then I, I, I talk about this a lot with the diamond, you know, the, the drill ground. When, when you have the orientation, when your new hires are standing there, you know, they are mentally and phys uh, physically resilient men and women, you know, all in all, like you said, apart from the turd that got in, <laughs> but the rest right. of them. But, you know, fast forward 10 years, you know, they say, they say that some of them are obese. Some of them, like you said, are crabby as hell. Well, did they walk in that first day and said, I'm going to, I'm going to work for two, three years and then just start to be an asshole? No. Right. So there's, no. there's obviously an effect of this job. Some people just are lucky enough to have that environment. For me, I always say this. I had a blooming idyllic childhood. My parents got divorced when I was 18. So I got to go through my entire childhood first without, you know, having to deal with that. But I grew up on a farm in England, you know, it was when my dad was a veterinarian. I got to see, you know, had, compassion with animals and all these amazing things so my entry in there really didn't bring much trauma with it at all you know but again the other guy that maybe had prior military service maybe you know again he lost his father whatever it was it might take a few years for that to manifest when you add on the sleep deprivation the things that we start seeing and so physically we need a understand this person just didn't want to get fat you know and, and mentally it's the same thing these are warning signs for us to go firstly these people need help and secondly is our environment creating people uh you know, a condition for people to thrive or maybe we should we look at the way we're doing things are we overworking our people you know is the the understaffing affecting these people mentally physically you know and 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 actually reverse engineer your department and say how can we do this better because if you've got a bunch of people that after 10 years are falling apart physically and or mentally then that's part of the machine that you got to look at too it's it and it's funny it just hit me and i haven't thought of this story in a long time but when i did i did a talk in in the uk and i was just sitting around with a bunch of, of chiefs leaders out there and um, and after I was done, they said, you know, we, we check in on our folks. Literally, our, our, our company officer will sit around the table before they start and go, well, how's everybody doing? Where, where are we at? And if 
somebody's wife is very ill or is just coming off surgery or whatever, that person may not be driving that day. That They were slotted for that, but they're not going to drive that day because their head's not there. Or we may go, is your head here even enough to be here? And I, I looked at him and I have to tell you, I looked at him and I said, so you do that every day for everybody who's sitting there? And uh, he said, yeah, it's a, it's a 10 second check-in. I go, if you did that in the United States, if four guys on a shift decided it was a nice day to play golf, they might all have an issue. And all of a sudden they're on the tee somewhere. I go, it's a little, it's different. And it, but it, it doesn't need to be different. It's, it's because we've set that up to go, well, no, it's not meant to be an excuse and it's not meant to be a, a way to abuse the system. It's a way to use the system so that you are not put in a really difficult position of making a decision to come to work that day when you're not ready to protect yourself the people you work with or the people that you respond to. And and I think that there is your guy who comes in very crabby or, or the opposite, the guy who's normally very engaged and all of a sudden is kind of a recluse, doesn't talk to anybody, doesn't watch TV, doesn't, you know, sitting on the apparatus floor by himself. He's just trying to make it through a 24-hour tour. Well, it shouldn't be that way. I mean, somebody comes in, they got 102 fever and a coughing all over the place, you send them home. Because, like, you need some rest. You need some recovery. I appreciate you came here, but you need to go we don't have somebody walk in and we see symptoms and do something about it because we don't know what the hell those symptoms mean. We haven't been trained in it. And so we become fearful. So we avoid it. And we let that person just kind of do their own thought. just having a bad day. Really? That's six months of a bad day. I've never had a bad day before. You're, and you're not even investigating it. You're not offering some kind of help or even just that courage to go, are you okay? And, and I really like what you said about being consistent and insistent with them is to keep asking. Oh, okay. He said it was, he said it was okay. No, 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 no. Is there anything I can do for you? Yeah, I'm fine. Is there anything I can do? For you? I just had a chief, Jim Grady, who's the executive director of the Illinois fire chief. Somebody I have an incredible amount of respect for as a leader who said, I had a guy one day and he goes, I knew something was wrong. And he said, I went up to him and says, is there anything I can do for you? He goes, no, I'm good. Chief. Says, is there anything? No, really? You're not yourself. Is there anything I can do for you? I'm, I'm good. Chief. I'm going to go get a cup of coffee. And when I come back from the kitchen, we are going to talk or we're going to take a ride. It's going to be one of the two. And went and got his cup of coffee, came back and found out that his wife had filed divorce papers that morning without him knowing it. Because of the insistence and the caring, this man opened, who knows where this would have gone. I don't know, not saying this person would have gotten suicidal or whatever, but maybe. But because somebody was not going to take no for an answer. And there, I really believe that little voice inside of you is a powerful source of intuition as well as I think where you get things from way beyond who's inside of you, things, other spirits. And, and I have a great faith and I really believe sometimes those little angels get in your ear and go, this guy's in trouble. You need to do something about it. Even if you're not sure what you should, because I'm telling you he's in trouble and trusting that to go, I'm not going to take the little answer and be okay with it because then I checked the box that I checked in on the person which is what a lot of times ends up happening when people have an employee assistance program. Um, it's like, okay, well, I gave them the EAP card. I knew they were in trouble. I gave them an EAP card. Well, that's just freaking wonderful. That's And really, that's going to be enough. Do you know who your EAP is? Do you know what they know about your fire department? Do you know the insurance limitations? You get some man or woman who is courageous enough to seek out the EAP and they do three visits and they end up connected to that counselor and they're like, whoa, I'm starting to feel better. And then the counselor has to go, well, yeah, that's the end of your visit. So now you need to see a private counselor and it's going to cost $100 as a copay and then blah, blah, blah. 
You don't even know that. All you do is hand them a card. Now you've gotten them halfway through their antibiotics to get better and they're feeling better and they quit taking the prescription. What happens? It comes back with a vengeance. The disease, well, mental health is a disease. And it comes back because you didn't do enough to make sure that the system was comprehensive and you were a part of it. Um, and I really do think that people run out of energy. That there are, I think we're spread thin on all the things that we we do in our profession and you're spread thin on all the things that you gotta deal with it in life. But that's not an excuse to go, I'm gonna back away from something that could end up being fatal. If you saw a wall at a fire that was structurally unsafe, you'd get everybody out of the collapse zone. We don't get people mentally out of the collapse zone. We just don't make that that as much of a priority as we have to. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You talked earlier about having your first son. So I'd love to steer the conversation now towards, you know, fatherhood and then, you know, obviously your your son Sean's path after that. Yeah, I was very blessed. We had um three boys. Um Brendan, Patrick, and Sean. No Anthony's in there, all the, the good Irish strong names. And uh, Sean being my my youngest and definitely of the personality traits in the family, the one that I, I had envisioned being a firefighter. My, my oldest guy used to joke about the fact that he saw me be a fire chief. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really want to push papers for the rest of my life. So no, I don't really want to do that. My middle guy, incredible heart also but said yeah blood makes me kind of nauseous including my own so i don't think i can do that sean was definitely the one that i would have i because of his heart and and strength and character that i thought well okay this if somebody's going to follow my footsteps it's going to be him well at the age of five sean was diagnosed with clinical depression now i didn't know you could have depression at five i thought you could be upset about you you didn't get a bowl of ice cream or you got grounded or whatever but um my wife, Eileen, who was always the smartest one in, the, in the, our pairing, um, she noticed that he was coloring everything in black, never used any other color crayons. Also, back then, Velcro shoes were a big deal. And he literally, before he would go to kindergarten, would do each shoe 50 to 100 times. If you interrupted that cycle, he would have what I considered a temper tantrum. What we know now was an anxiety attack. So she took him to a psychiatrist. Now, I'm fire chief of an organization. I'm big in the leadership. I'm, you know, I'm where the cape saved the day. It's like, okay, you got a five-year-old. They have to go to a psychiatrist. I, I kind of blew it off. And she went, and he was diagnosed. Said, yeah, this kid's cl clinically depressed. So, so you're starting medication at five and therapy on a regular basis at five. And honestly, I went along with it because I, I was like, okay, well, this makes hun, if this makes you feel better and you think this is what needs to be, that's good. And I, I got I got people to save. So we're good. It wasn't until junior high, which as as everybody knows, when you when you have children in junior high uh, with the hormonal change, it's it's a it's a rough ride for everybody. But when you have a child that's got mental health struggles, it really ramps up. And at, at junior high, at seventh grade, he became he was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive, which I thought was you you wash your hands too many times, you turn off the light switch an extra time. I didn't understand it, and I didn't I didn't look into it enough. And what it turns out in Sean's case was that it was these incredibly intrusive thoughts would come into his mind, and so I found a journal that he wrote in which he was literally counting how many times he was taking a breath as he was learning all these algebra formulas. Now, if I tried to do that, I'd pass out. I wouldn't even be able to do it. And, and that's one of the misnomers about 
people who struggle with mental health challenges is they're dumb. It's like, no, they're incredibly intelligent people. They are people that just have this disease. And these thoughts would come in and fight against him every single day of his life. When he got to 14, and as we talked earlier before, 14, big symbolic number for me, um, he was getting ready to start freshman year of high school. And the day before he was going to start high school, he said, um, I can't do this anymore. And I was like, well, what do you mean you can't do it anymore? You know, your brothers are in the high school yet. Or, you know, people are going to give you a hard time. And that kind of goes with being a freshman. And um, don't buy an elevator pass because there's no elevator. And, and, and my wife looked at me and said, be quiet. She said, what do you mean, Sean? And he said, I, I can't do the same where I don't want to live. Now, I at that point was the chief of a wonderful fire department that was a one station career department. It was tiny enough that I knew everybody's significant other. I knew all their kids' birthdays, and our kids all grew up together. We had a hospital that was four blocks away. And normally when we would get a mental health call, it would be in the middle of the night. It would come in sounding like a cardiac. You'd get there and realize it was an anxiety attack. You would transport the patient. You would get to this hospital, and they had a certain set of elevators that you would use. You'd go up those elevators to the fourth floor. person would get off the gurney. They'd go in a room, take off all their private clothes so they didn't have any shoelaces or belts, be get put in a gown, and they would disappear behind this door. Then I felt like, okay, now they're in there with all the other losers. We'd go back upset that we were out in the middle of the night, going to go home with little sleep, many working a second job, and move on. So I thought, okay, wait a minute. I know how to fix this. So I said, Sean, you realize if you're talking about that you're going to take your life, that I have a responsibility as your dad to take you to the hospital. And what they're going to do is they're going to put you in the hospital, fully thinking that that would scare him into, well, this wasn't that big of a deal. Instead, I got the first major learning lesson as a parent of what's not in the parent handbook. He looked at me and he said, I know, dad, let's go and got in the car and closed the door. And I remember standing in the front of the car like, Oh, my God. We got in the car, drove to the hospital. We took those elevators, went up to the fourth floor. Sean disappeared into that room, came out in a gown, and he disappeared behind that door. Except, James, there was a difference in that door that day for the first time in my life. The people behind that door weren't losers anymore because my son was not a loser. And so I saw moms and doctors and lawyers and financial consultants and plumbers and people who just were ill but they were people, they weren't losers. And I was sick to my stomach the whole way we drove home. And I don't think I was as sick to my stomach about the fact that I just put my 14 year old kid in a psych ward as I was thinking of all those people in my career I had labeled up to that point that I didn't understand that they were part of a family and they truly were ill. So we went all through high school up and down with various medications, all sorts of different types of therapies, you name it, Sean tried it, multiple suicide attempts. And now we're at the end of high school and getting to senior year and we're in January and he comes to us and says, they need help. At this point, we are emotionally and financially bankrupt. And it's like, Sean, what the hell else kind of help could you need? I, I, we don't even know what to do for you anymore. And he said, taking drugs. And I remember reacting and going, you can't smoke that shit because you know it, it affects the medication you're on. It can enhance it. It can reduce it. You can't do that. He said, well, I'm not doing that. I go, what do you mean you're not doing that? So I'm doing other stuff. 
what other stuff are you doing? Well, I'm doing coke and heroin. Now, everybody can say that their mom was the best mom ever in the world, and I'm, I'll, I'll agree with everybody for a tie, but nobody was a better mom than my wife. And they had an incredibly close relationship. She was the love of his life. And she had no clue. We lived in this tiny house. We bought a little bungalow that I eventually was hoping would we upsized to a nicer house. Couldn't afford to do it because of all the struggles Sean had gone through. And so there was no hiding in that house. He was very close with his two brothers. Never saw it. Never saw it at all. And I said, Sean, why? Why in the hell would you do that? He said, Dad, for just that little moment, I feel normal. I feel like I get some relief, but I'm here to tell you, I know I can't go through life like this, so I need help. So we put him, sent him to a rehab center that did dual diagnosis, so they took care of the mental health along with the addiction. And in many cases, it's the chicken and the egg that many people self-medicate, and Sean was self-medicating to get away from those intrusive thoughts. So he went into a 90-day program. He was 18 years old. He was in the he was the oldest one in the adolescent wing, the only one that could sign himself out at any point. And there were multiple times he wanted to, but he didn't. And he became like the dad of the wing. And, and, and I remember them telling me one story of them bringing a child there where a mom did not tell the child she was bringing him to come in and end up in this institution. And you can imagine what occurred in the parking lot. And they literally sent Sean out to talk to this kid. And Sean talked him into coming into a place that Sean didn't want to be himself, but knew that there was benefits and that you could get better. And so he successfully completed the 90 days. And we thought, oh, boy, maybe we got a new lease on life here. Maybe this what was needed was a cleansing of him, not only in terms of the addiction, but a cleansing of his mind. He came out, started, um, graduated with a B from his high school graduation, did not walk with his class because he did all of his, the last quarter of his classwork in rehab, didn't care about walking with them. And I think was starting to already feel like I don't belong. We talked about that belonging before. I don't belong with that group. I'm not, they can't even relate to what I'm doing. Tried um, junior college and because of the obsessive compulsive would have the same period, would take too many hours would end up going full tilt, doing great, and then just bottom out, couldn't go to class. Working part-time jobs, work regular hours, over hours, holiday hours, and all of a sudden couldn't keep the job. It was just a pattern. And another suicide attempt ensued. And finally, I had to have the conversation that I never thought I would ever have to have with any of my kids and no training and no thought about and said, Sean, unless you can promise me that you won't try to take your life again, you can't live here anymore. I go, I can't have mom find you. It would destroy her. I said, so look me in the eye and tell me this isn't going to happen again. And I can still picture his eyes and the sadness in his eyes. And he goes, I can't do that, dad. I can't. So we looked for a group home for him to move into where they would provide education. There would be a counselor living there. They would monitor their meds, the whole nine yards. And he didn't want to go in the worst way. He loved being in his house. He loved being with his mom. We were scheduled to go away for our 25th wedding anniversary, and it was the first time that we were actually going to be able to go away. We were going to go to Hawaii, and we he knew, and we knew it was contingent on him getting into this group home, and it looked like it was all set. We're in the middle of December. Everything's fine, and all of a sudden, with a week to go, they went, no, it's not going to fly. We, got, we don't have an opening, so it'll be for a while, which would have canceled our trip. He went. And back then, this is in the in the 90s, early 90s, he went, got his brother to take him to the store, went and got a home fax machine, 
set it up, faxed a letter to the doctor saying, I need clearance and I need you to make this a priority to get me into this group home. Got a letter back from the doctor. This is during the holidays. Back from the doctor. Sent the letter to the group home. And all of a sudden, we get confirmation, right? Literally right as we're getting ready to go to the airport that, yeah, he'll be in tomorrow. We got him in. This is the kind of heart this kid had. So when you talk again about people with mental health struggles, they're like, well, they're bad people. They're uh, bullshit. They're not. They're great people. And he was a great kid to go to this extreme, to go into something he didn't want to. So he goes into the group home. He's in there for about three months. And all of a sudden we get a call that he's missing. It's like, well, what do you mean he's missing? He was in your care. Well, we don't lock everybody down here. It's not a jail. And the following morning, we get a call from the local hospital. We have your son here. Um, we find he was found down unconscious. We don't know how long he was down, but you need to get to the hospital right away. So my wife and I shot to the hospital and walked in and I, I know that look. He was on a ventilator. He was gray. He was aspirating around the ventilator. And I'm like, my God, he's gone. And I remember going up and grabbing his hand. Sorry, I get a little emotional now. I remember going up and grabbing his hand and saying, hey, buddy, you fought really hard. It's time to go. Go. It's okay. Go. Go. Go someplace where it'll be safe. You just got to get out of here. My wife and I made the phone calls. You were handed the DNR papers. Do you want to sign these? Would you sign the organ donor? I mean, it was just a flurry of like, two hours of hell. And finally, it was like my wife came from a huge family. Here I am, an Irish Catholic only child. And my wife was Irish Catholic, one of 13. So more than normal Irish Catholic family. And it was how are we going to let everybody know to come say goodbye. So he was taken up to ICU with the thought everybody's going to proceed in here and say goodbye. And then we're going to turn off this ventilator and wait. So that happened for the next 24 hours, people coming in, coming in, coming in, coming in. And Finally, as this sea of people seemed to be ending, the doctor came in and he said, I want you to tear up the DNR. And I go, why in the hell would I do that? He said, because he's fighting, he's trying, we can see. So we're gonna give him a chance. I'm like, well, absolutely, give me the pay, do whatever you can do. So for the next few days, they were like, we're gonna try each day to take him off the ventilator and see if he can breathe on his own. Tried it, didn't work. Tried it, didn't work. Tried it, didn't work. Finally, they said, we're gonna try one more time. And if that doesn't work, then you'll have to find a place for him. And I'm like, find a place for him like what? Like like this? Put him in some kind of a home on a ventilator at 20 years old? This is, this is what we're, we're, we're faced with? Yeah. Well, it turns out the next day was St. Patrick's Day. Now, St. Patrick's Day in our family was like the, the unbelievable holiday. And our kids were spoiled on that. Everything was baked in green. They were dressed in green. I hate to admit that they were better at pouring a green beer out of a keg than they were at doing their homework. <laughs> and here we were, it's like St. Patrick's Day, and I'm like going, okay. So I walked into his room that morning and literally put up all these decorations in the ICU, and, and it was cute now, it wasn't that day, but the nurse walked in and she said, the hell are all these decorations for? And I'm like, are you kidding me? You don't know, today's a national holiday. You don't know what the hell today is? Like it's St. Patrick's Day. And she's like, oh, okay. She walks out, I'm going, oh my God, this is gonna help take him off the ventilator. Here we go. So the time comes in. So Mr. Fire Chief, Mr. Leader, Mr. Wear the Cape, Mr. Save everybody else. I was too afraid to stay in the room. So I literally stood in the hallway and my wife, courageous of the two of us went in there and I, and I had a niece 
who was there that day visiting Sarah, who said, I'll go in with her. Here I am. This, I'm his dad. I, I had given my word when I got married to protect my wife, which meant that we were blessed to have children. It was to protect my kids. And I couldn't go in the room. And they went in there and I waited in the hallway. And all of a sudden I heard this coughing and I'm like, I must be one of the nurses because I was so sure this was going to be a life of where he'd be on a ventilator. And I was very angry with God going, you put him through so much that you're going to do this to him now and his mom. And I hear the cough again. like, And I peeked around the corner, literally like a little kid. And his eyes were open and he was off the ventilator and he caught my eyes in this big smile, this beautiful smile. I remember as a healthy child came on his face and I was like, are you laughing at my tie? Because I had the most obnoxious St. Patrick's Day tie on I could find. And he nodded his head and I started to cry and ran up to him. I'm like, oh my God, we've got you back. And the nurse, everybody's crying and the nurses are like, you too, you need to go home and sleep and he needs to rest. He's been through an awful lot. Next morning, the phone rings, and it, the caller ID shows it's the hospital, and I'm sure he died during the night. So I pick up the phone, and there's this very raspy voice on the other end of the line. It's like, Dad, are you coming to see me today? And I was like, oh, my God. He, what, uh, one way, shoot down there. We walk in, and we get into his room. He's very agitated. He's sitting on the edge of his bed, and he wants to talk. I'm like, Sean, I go, you've been on this ventilator. This thing's been down your throat. I go, relax. We got time now. Just sit back in the bed. Just let me hug you. And he know I, I need to talk. And my wife, again, Pat, go over there and sit down and be quiet. Sean, what, what? What do you need to talk about? He goes, saw Sean Kenny. And I, I go, oh, my God, I knew he had brain damage. I knew it. He doesn't even know who he is. And, and my wife goes, hang on a minute. She goes, Sean, no, you're Sean Kenny. Who did you see he saw? said, I saw Grandpa Mike. And I'm like looking at him going, did he say what I think he said? She goes, you saw Grandpa Mike? What do you mean you saw Grandpa Mike? He goes, looks just like dad, but younger. Big hands, black curly hair. And she's like, now, Sean had never seen a picture of my dad in his prime like he described when he was a hurler. And that's exactly what he looked like. When I was a little boy, my dad was an engineer, and I remember walking with him and his hands feeling his hands were huge, like 10 times the size of my hand and feeling how cool this was to have this big hand and golf mine. And my wife said, did Grandpa Mike talk to you? He said, yeah, we sat on this concrete bench with all these advertisements behind it. Now, my dad never had a driver's license. We always took public transportation everywhere. Whenever I went anywhere with him, we took the bus and we would sit on a concrete bench with advertisements behind it, waiting for the bus. Those things didn't even exist in Sean's lifetime. He never saw them. He never heard about them. And yet he described it in detail. And she said, what else did Grandpa Mike say to you? He said, tell dad, I'm sorry, I had to leave him. Sorry. I had to leave him so early. Now you can tell me, 20-year-old, drug addiction, oxygen deprivation, all the drugs they pushed to keep him alive that had messed with his brain. No 20-year-old kid knows what it feels like as a father if you had to leave your kid for whatever reason behind. And the emotion in his voice and the tears in his eyes, I could feel it. And at that point, I sat down because I was afraid I'd fall down. And she said, what else did Grandpa Mike say to you? He said, Sean, you need to go back. It's not your time. So... I don't know, and maybe this is the most important message of this podcast for somebody listening out there. 
whether you believe in God, you have a religion, you don't have a religion. If you've ever loved somebody and you wonder, are they someplace else? I don't know what it's called and I don't know where it is, but it's there because Sean was there. And that discussion he had with my dad was not a hallucination, nothing he could have retrieved from a memory bank of nothing that even was stored there. He saw my dad. And I'm like, oh my God, all those years of hoping he was watching me and still being my hero was like, he could see me. Like, okay, now I'm sure we are golden. Not only did he survive, but he saw my dad. We are gonna, he's gonna be just fine. And it didn't work that way. He got worse. He had lost some hearing from being down. Um, they tried actually, that was in March and April. They tried to, he was the first person to have this surgery where they put an implant in his chest with the hope of blocking some of the chemical impulses that would trigger things in the brain. And he just got worse. His voice would crack like he was going through puberty. And ironically on Easter Sunday, he passed out in our home. And my wife was sure he had taken an overdose of something. And I remember running into the bathroom and holding him and he can't hear me well because the hearing aid's not in. And I'm like, Sean, did you take something? And with these sad eyes, he looked at me and went, no, dad, I didn't. And took him to the hospital and they were like, no, he's clean. It's the device. So on June the 3rd of that year, he took his life. And people will always say to me, are you upset? Are you angry with him? Remember, I, I laid in that cemetery at 14. I watched what he went through. We took him to Mayo Clinic at one point the year before, so when he was 19, and spent out of our own pockets a week's worth of investigation physically and mentally of everything going on with him. At the end of the week, James, they said to us, he's terminal. And I remember saying, did you find something in his brain? Like I was hopeful. And they're like, no, you don't get it. We have 10 breast cancer patients, same age, same diagnosis. We do the same course of treatment. Nine respond wonderfully. One does not. We don't know why, but it, the disease does not respond to anything we throw at it. He goes, it's the same with Sean. We reviewed his chart. He's tried every medicine we know and every intervention, and the disease is not responding. If something doesn't change soon, he will take his life. Because every day he makes the decision to stay, not to go, he decides to stay one more day. And so I get it. I absolutely get it. And what he taught me about mental health was I look at the value of this kid. I think of all the goodness. And as I had mentioned earlier, when he looked in the mirror, he saw nothing but ugly nothing but pain. I looked in the mirror and I saw a handsome kid who everybody loved who could walk in the room and he could light that room up. He had a, a magnetism, a leadership magnetism. He was the catcher on his baseball team, the center of his football team. He, but he never saw that he couldn't feel that. And the intrusive thoughts had gotten so bad. There was only one way out. And the hotel that he went to to take his life, it was this flea bag hotel in the city. And the lady who saw him at the front desk because when I went down to get her stuff, she thought I was a cop because of my unmarked car and she was very guarded. And when she brought out his bag of clothes, I just burst into tears and she looked at me and she said, you're not a cop. And I said, no, I call him his dad. And she said, I was here when he checked in and he said to me, good morning. He said, what a beautiful day. And it was because he was now relieved that soon he wasn't going to be in that pain anymore. So all those things he taught me, inspired me to go, I got to do something about this. I didn't. I, I had the chance in my fire department to change the culture about mental health by just sharing 
Sean's almost 15-year journey. I didn't. I didn't tell anybody. The only people who knew were my deputy and my secretary because I would have to disappear as the chief for hours and sometimes overnight at a time based on where he was in his illness because I was afraid that they would see him walk in the door and they would think less of him. But, you know, James, as more years go by, I think I was more afraid of what they think of me. Okay, you're our leader. You're supposed to protect us. And you can't even take care of your own kid. What the hell are you going to do when we're in trouble? And I think I did it to protect me as much as I did to protect him. And I missed the window of where I could have made it normal at the kitchen table. And here's the follow-up to that that's really critical. A month later, it's 4th of July. Like everybody else, we have a big holiday. But it's a mandatory report because we had a small department about this big festival we had. I didn't pay any attention. I went in that day and Eileen begged me, don't go in there. It will tear you apart. All those families and just don't do that. Nope, nope. the guy in the cape, nope, got to do it. Because where did I feel comfortable? In the phone booth. I went in there, I shook hands. I did all glad handy and then went to my office and sobbed for three hours till it was over and then came out, said goodbye to everybody and went home. The following day, there's a lieutenant at the door. Chief, can I talk to you for a minute? What's up? He said, you didn't give firefighter so-and-so yesterday off, did you, from this mandatory detail? I go, you know what? I, I don't even remember what the hell I'm doing now, I, 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 but I don't think so. He said, well, there are other issues. And he had a pile of paper, which is never a good sign for a chief. And he said, we've had some issues with him over the last month with altercations, and the last one got physical. I'm like, is he here today? He said, yeah. He said, send him in. Now, I would love to tell you that my thought process was I'm going to I'm going to be the guy who's going, what's going on? And how are you doing? No. In my mind, that short hallway he was about to walk down to, I was, he was going to get every anger, negative emotion I had. He just gave me a permission slip to kick his ass with everything that self-loathing I had. So he came in and sat down. I didn't look up. I was looking at the papers. He sat down. He goes, Chief, do you want to know where I was yesterday? I said, I don't really give a shit where you were yesterday. I said, let's go back and start looking at June, whatever it was. You've had an altercation. And he said again. Chief, do you want to know where I was yesterday? And honest to God, James, this time I heard Sean's voice. He goes, Dad, you need to look up. And I literally looked up over my glasses and he was crying. I put the papers down and I go, where were you yesterday? He said, well, you know, for the last month, we've talked about Sean at the kitchen table, talked about what that must have been like, how we feel bad that there wasn't anything we could do to help him. We could have helped Eileen. We could have helped Pat and Brendan, your, your other boys, and we could have helped you. But we didn't know. He said, but we really believe he's not in pain anymore and that he's safe. And that's a good thing. He said, yesterday I sat in a bathtub with a gun in my mouth for the whole day and thought about joining him. Now, again, love to tell you, angels sitting here was the guy. They're all, well, here, I got a chance to save the day with you. No, in fact, in my mind, I was thinking, God, is there any way I can trade this guy's ass for my son? Can we do that? Is that possible? And again, I heard Sean in my ear go, Dad, you know what to do. Just please do it. So I said, okay, what's going on? And what turns out is for the past three years in this little firehouse where we all knew each other, he would take personal time or vacation time whenever he lost a patient on the ambulance. And I'm not talking about somebody that died in his arms. I'm talking about that he could have gone to the house and this person could have been dead for 12 hours. But the guilt of feeling like the cape that he had sworn to take to save people, that every time he let these people down, we had no clue about that. So I take him to the hospital. We go up the elevator. 
He gets out of the elevator, takes his uniform off, and now he disappears behind that door with the other people who are suffering. And he got help. And it turns out he had PTSD so bad that he had to go off the job. He is, to this day, to his absolute positive, I can't even say enough about the courage of this guy, is doing good, is managing the PTSD, is no longer in the fire service, but pretty soon I'm hoping is going to be able to walk his daughter down the aisle and he has a son who became a firefighter because of him. Just tremendous. But he always said, you know, Sean saved my life. Are you saved my life? And I go, no, that's bullshit. Sean saved your life. I go, because Sean died, you all talked about it at the table. If I had just opened my mouth 15 years ago and told this story like I would have if he had any other difficult illness, you might have come forward three years ago when this was starting to haunt you and we might have saved your career. And that's when I went, I've got to, I've got to do something so people know they've got to change the stigma in their fire departments. Do it before something happens because I didn't. Well, Pat, I want to first just say Thank you so much. I mean, it's a heart-wrenching story as a parent myself, especially as a, with the little boys going through that, you know, issue at the moment. And I think it, hopefully it's a it's a more mild version of, but I'm sure so many people listening are seeing a, a lot more mental health issues in their children than we discuss about as well. And I, I, I've just kind of tripped over this this Baker Act thing that you and I discussed about, and it literally blew open this world of of issues that we're seeing in our children and, and and some schools are doing it very well some schools are dropping the ball but the 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 awful awful fact is that we're talking about it finally in the first responder community the military we're talking about it a little bit ahead of us and now i think we're looking again and be like well shit you know our kids are hurting and and, and i know that sean didn't grow up quite in this generation but now we've got in a generation of children who are where you and I did fire drills when we were kids, and, and I don't remember being traumatized by that at all because it was just a way of getting out of math, and I was really bad at math. <laughs> but but now they're drilling where they turn off the lights, put desks against the door, and hide in the corner of the room because someone is coming with a gun to murder them all. You know what right. I mean? So so that we have we have you know the social media stuff. There's so many other areas. So separate from Sean's story, which you know again is. The, the courage that that he had and the the battles that he had, we need to talk about this as a firehouse, a fire department, police department, you know, ER, but also our children. I had no idea how rampant mental ill health and mental challenges are amongst our kids, and that is also a discussion that you hardly ever hear. No, I agree, and in, in the the statistics of of college students who take their life is staggering. And and you think about it, the environment, all well meaning, no parent ever parents their children with the intent that they're going to put them in a compromising position. But because of the way our kids are raised, we want always everything better for them, and now they're being we protect them from everything. A child who's already suffering with some mental health illnesses is not going to come forward because it's not going to reflect well on when you apply for college. It's not going to reflect well on your parents. It's certainly not going to reflect well in your peer group because it'll be all over Twitter and Facebook and everything that you're a loser. And instead of somebody passing a note in my generation that said I was fat pat, now they would have blasted it to 600 people, you know, in, in a, a 30 seconds. And then they get to college where it is a lonely environment anyways and you have to be incredibly resilient because you might meet some of the first failures ever in your life. And we have not built a system for these kids to be able to realize that, yeah, that that's a pretty common reaction. And here's what you do if that happens. So they, again, 
look at like, I only have one alternative. I don't want to be around. I don't belong. I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, and, and we see it and you're right in, in the schools. I'm a volunteer coach on our, at our high school for baseball. And I've been blessed to have 20 years coaching kids that it really, after Sean passed, it was, it was my therapy. Those, those young men kept me going and I would listen to things that you would hear as a coach that you wouldn't hear as a teacher and just be able to pull kids aside and go, you, you need to go into your counselor and have a discussion about that because this is, that's, that's a normal reaction to what just happened to you either with your girlfriend or you flunked an exam or you're hiding the grades from your parents or whatever it would be. But you need to go and talk about that because otherwise this becomes a bigger deal than even you think it is. And it, that, that environment there is also very stale in terms of this topic. Like, no, we, we, we don't want to get on there. We don't want to, and this one always drives me, we don't want to encourage the fact by talking about it that people will, well, all of a sudden we're going to have this mass suicide occurring. Well, wait a minute. I mean, the studies have shown for years that the reduction in PTSD just by having a conversation with somebody, not necessarily a therapist, or that's why peer support is taken off, is reduces the, that impact so we don't even make conversation. We don't encourage conversation. And it's hard enough our kids now are, you know, are on their devices. So their communication is much different than what I grew up with, which doesn't necessarily make it wrong. But you have to realize what are the positives and the negatives. And there are incredible number of positives in terms of efficiency and speed. But the negatives are I don't do a whole lot of face to face. And so when I'm really in trouble, that's when you expect me to come face to face. Not if you haven't set up the environment for that child from the time they're growing up. Very similar to what we talk, just talked about at our orientation. Who would think a five-year-old would have clinical depression? Okay, it happens because it's an illness. Why are children born with cancer when they're infants? It's an illness. It's, a, it's something that occurs inside their body they can't control. But we don't talk about that as they're growing. And I was just as guilty. I ignored it. I tried to put it away with Sean until it slapped me in the face so bad. That first suicide attempt, I no longer could look at it as a different and it's something that didn't exist. So you're right. I think looking at, so then if, if we groom our kids that way to feel like they have support and that it's normal, here's what you do. Then when we get them as young people in the fire service, guess what? The, the parents have already done a lot of the legwork of what we need to do to go, this is okay, man, this is normal. And and now we're, we're thrilled you're going in this profession to help people, but guess what? You're not going to always help them. You're going to see really bad stuff. And when it hits you, remember what I, we talked about in fourth grade about here, you need to reach out when you start to feel this way. Well, that's what you damn well better do in that profession. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I, I had a conversation with Steve Harrell yesterday, who is a, a retired fighter pilot. Um, he actually became a fireman for a firefighter paramedic for a year. So a really interesting insight into our career coming from such a high level military position. Um, but he now runs a camp for the kids of members of the military that died. And, and what's beautiful is that includes, you know, succumbing to wounds or even, uh, suicide if they were on, you know, they were, if they were still in the military. Um, and he made the same comment. Like we have some kids, they do well, but when they go to college, we noticed that they weren't doing well again. So then they started opening the camp up to the college age. And then now, you know, so a lot of those kids become mentors in the camp. But it's another area you don't think about. As a as a kid in high school, you have your tribe, you have your family as tribe. Now they move away across the country to a dorm room, you know, with with and you've kind of still been led through school. Now you're completely independent. You got to find out your schedule. You got to go here. You got to 
you know, fend for yourself and, and create a new tribe, some people are going to do it very well. But if you've got someone who's already struggling mentally and then you take them away from all of their positive coping mechanisms and drop them in a completely different place, I can see how in, in, in a vulnerable mind that could really tip them over the edge. Absolutely. And I, I always encourage parents when they're saying, you know, any advice about what you should be looking at when you go away to schools and stuff, I go, make sure you ask them if my child has a really bad day, who do they go talk to? Is that 24-7? When do they make the connection? Will you introduce them when they first come on campus? How do they know when that moment hits? And they'll look at me and go, well, that's kind of pessimistic. I know that. No, that's realistic. And if they never have to make that phone call, then when they graduate, you give them an extra hug. But if they have to make that phone call, you don't want them at two o'clock in the morning trying to figure it out because it may be a whole lot easier to do something you don't want to think about. And we don't. So that's a normal. It's like asking a question about, all right, what's the tuition? And are they going to have their own room? Are they going to share a room? It's like one, just one more question. But it's not on the radar because it's almost like you're indicting your child by asking the question. It's like, no, I'm caring about my child by asking the question. Just like looking to have these programs in place for our folks is caring for your firefighters, not the opposite. Yeah. And then to me, that's tantamount with, with saying, oh, is there a chiropractor in, in, in the school area? Well, that's kind of right. pessimistic. <laughs> it's, no, it's self-care and it's, it's physical right. self-care and it's mental self-care. And even if the kids are doing incredibly well and they're very resilient, this is an ongoing care process. And, and a, a, the fact that a counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist needs to be seen just when the shits hit the fan is another complete fallacy. Like, we we have things that we deal with and it can be in our profession which is very extreme or the rest of life which can be you know i mean your your story so far and you're going to carry on the traumas that you've experienced outside your profession alone would would you know would be an incredible load with on all of us so to view any sort of mental health support as in any way less important than physical health is is absolutely ridiculous yeah i i i agree and i i think the the other part that's really really important is is that is that whole looking at it at the population we've centered on that suicide is is obviously a struggle now when dealing with first responders but it but it truly is a societal problem and i think if 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 we go at it as a society, then it removes, even when you get into a profession like ours, it really kind of ramps up the fact that, yeah, you're, you're held to this wonderful standard of that. You're, you're going to make save the day that then they're not caught in that battle of, well, yeah, but I can't feel this way because I'm supposed to be there for everybody else. No, you're a pretty special person that you're in this vocation to start with. And when you feel that way, just get it taken care of and then go back to doing what you're doing. And all through life, if, people are raised that way then it just becomes a whole lot easier to do yeah yeah and i think the other thing that people miss like i i hurt my back a few years ago and through the rehab and foundation training some other things i found i ended up coming back stronger and that's the other element of the mental health side is if you you know i mean obviously sean's case is different because he had you know like you said a terminal mental battle that that you know he he wasn't able to win but you know, most of the population, if you address what the issue is, you're going to come back more resilient. You're going to be stronger. You're going to, you're going to be more, more able to deal with whatever comes your way the next time. But if you don't address it, you're slowly breaking down, breaking down, breaking down. And would you do that physically? If you hurt your back, would you just leave the pain there 
or you know sad case we see so many people just take pills and don't don't ever fix it at some point as a firefighter you're going to break and you're going to you're going to have to retire out because you blew your back out versus you address the issues that caused that back injury in the first place and now you're the go-to guy anything anytime someone needs to be dragged out of a building because you've addressed that issue and you came back stronger no i i couldn't agree more and what you said before was powerful and i meant to follow up on it about that it, it going to see a counselor looking at you either do it in a crisis or that it's it, you don't do it and I, I always get a kick out of sometimes after I'm I finish doing Sean's talk I will always make sure to say yeah I need to go see my counselor for an oil change and people kind of look at me and I go yeah when I'm feeling anxious or when I'm noticing that I'm I'm eating something and my eating habits have changed and all of a sudden I'm eating a lot more and it's tasting really good and I go I just go in for an oil change and go you know what I'm this is how I'm feeling lately. Is that that it'll be might be coming up on Sean's anniversary? It might be a holiday, or it might not be anything at all. Something might have triggered me at at work, and I'll get yeah. Here's what's going on, and that's completely normal and good. You got your radar up, or no, that has nothing to do with anything. You're just you just happen to be hungry for extra pizza that week, and it it just checking in every once in a while, even if you're making big decisions in your life to go, here's my thought process. They're bouncing it off somebody who's listened to loads of stories and can can kind of predict a little bit better good healthy paths to go down to is really powerful. Exactly what you said about if I and I have a bad back too, now I have to go in more for routine to get it checked and learn the, the positives doing stretching and core exercise stuff that I honestly, I was never a stretcher ever on anything I ever did. And but now it's normal for me to go, I need to take the extra time to do that. Well, okay, if you take that extra hour to go see a counselor once a year, even as you do your annual physical, just to go, hey, here's what's going on in my life in the last year. Whoa, you you had two major calls and you had to put your dad in a nursing home. Do, do you get that you are you were under an incredible amount of stress? How are you handling that? Just a conversation. And it may be that you're handling it really, really well. And it may be that you're heading down a path that they can go, do you see where this is going and how you're treating it? May I suggest that you go this way? Oh, I didn't think about that. Didn't know I was going to do that. Okay, got it. It's that simple. It really it really is. In most cases, people try to make this. It's It truly is behind the curtain, some type of a magician, and it's not. It really is self-care and self-love to get yourself to a point of where you're like, I am worthy of getting that kind of help. I'm going to get it and I'm going to move on because then I am going to put the cape on and benefit all sorts of other people, my spouse, my family, and my profession because I'm healthy. Yeah, I absolutely couldn't agree more. Now, I want to get to, to one more area and then we'll do some wrap-up questions. But before we started recording, you told me um, how Eileen had come up with, you know, helped you come up with the concept of comparing mental health and, and cancer together and then how that sadly tied into you know, to her own health. So would you be able to tell that story? Absolutely. Um, so probably 2014. Um, so I had been doing Sean's presentation for five years at that point, And it had gone from, you might get five people in the audience and who were all struggling to now people asking for it to be a keynote speech between four or 500 people. And, but I, every audience I could look out and see 70% of them, Halfway through it, we're like, they're getting this. They're, they're, they're understanding that this is truly a physical illness. And then the other 30% had just a lot of empathy and or sympathy in their eyes. And I'm like, I am not connecting on this. I've got to find a way to make them believe 
that when you've got depression or anxiety or bipolar, that it's actually something chemically going on in you. So we sat down and said, what about if I compare this to a physical illness? What do you think? And we talked about cancer and we agreed, let's do brain cancer. And so I put together a couple of slides that basically took people through the fire service with cancer in the fire service with brain cancer and basically started off with saying, okay, as a firefighter, are you exposed to dangerous byproducts that would put you in a position where you're more likely to contract cancer? Yeah, you are. Are you exposed on the mental health side to these emotional traumatic situations that would make it more likely that you might have some mental health challenges? Absolutely. Okay. Check the first box. The second one was, is there any way to diagnose this? Do you do, do, does there some way in the organization, something formal? Well, on the cancer side, we, we've got an annual medical. We have saved lives through that cancer screening. On the mental health side, not so much in most places, there's nothing. So that person who's gone through those traumatic calls and then ends up having to put their dad in a nursing home. We, if we have a blood pressure that's a tick too high, you're not supposed to go back to duty until you follow up with a physician. That person that we know has been through a trauma, we don't give them even a recommendation that you need to go see somebody. So we've got a hole. The next level is denial. Okay, I got a lump on my back. Yeah, it's just a cyst. I'm not going to go get that checked out. It, I'm sure it's nothing at all on the cancer side. And certainly on the mental health side, we deny and say, no, I'm, I'm you know, no, I'm fine. I'm just a little crabby or I'm, nobody sleeps well or it's just an extra drink or whatever. Um, or my wife doesn't understand me. And so we deny it. And then you go to the next level of can you be, if you seek help, can you be cured? And on the cancer side, yeah, there's a lot of treatment. There's a lot, but there's hope. And on the mental health side, is there for that also? Yes, there is. Again, both contingent on you must seek treatment. And the last level is what if it's terminal? What if you have terminal cancer? What ends up happening? Well, they treat you to buy quality time, quote unquote. We can't save you, but we're going to try and make the best of the time that's left. On the mental health side, the, the challenge was for Sean was let's see if we can get him a little bit more quality time. Maybe life will be better. In both cases, the end result is the same. You no longer have that person sitting at your kitchen table for Christmas. The difference is when there's a firefighter's funeral who passes away from cancer, the place is packed. The family's embraced, meals are brought, things are done. When you have a firefighter who takes their life, it's crickets at the walkthrough. The family might not be talked to at all. I've had, and this is a true story, I've actually had a fire chief in the last two years tell me a story from out east about a department where a young man took his life, firefighter. The neighboring agency was the one that responded to his call. The guys that were on the call were guys who were in the academy with this young firefighter. The department that lost the firefighter, the chief brought in critical incident stress debriefing, wanted to have just get everybody together at another time, just this kind of a follow-up. He invited the department who responded to the incident, all of them, and their significant others. And the chief said to his people, if you go to that debriefing, you're just as weak as the guy who killed himself. Now, that that bullshit attitude is still people say to me, well, Pat, do you think things have come a long way since Sean passed? Things have definitely progressed. They have still we, we are having much more of a conversation. But. There's still a lot of people out there that feels exactly the way that guy does. He just was stupid enough to open his mouth. And what does that do to the guy in his organization who's sitting there feeling really bad about himself and depressed? He sure the hell is not going to go seek any help because you're weak. 
we, we've told that story. So I put this slide together and then I followed it up with the medications that you're given for cancer can kill you. The medications that you're given for when you're dealing with mental health, they can also, the number one side effect of at least the last dozen medications, and I'm probably understating it, that Sean took was suicidal ideation. I remember one time saying to the doctor, did you get the damn memo about why my son's in here? He tried to kill himself. And you're telling me the medication you're going to pour into him has a side effect of he's going to think about killing himself. What the, what am I missing in this story? He said, that's just the truth. We have to tell you the truth. That is the side effect. And eventually then you end up that all you can do in either case is to love them. The one thing I will tell you specifically about Sean that is the lack of Irish Catholic guilt that both Eileen and I had was he knew we loved him. Even in the most dire situations when I was upset, couldn't understand what was going on. I always hugged him. I always told him that I loved him no matter what. And I can at least live with that fact that when he crossed over, my dad was there waiting for him. It was his time and he knew his parents loved him. You need to do that when somebody, and we do a better job of that when somebody is dying from cancer. We tell them in those final days, God, I'm really sorry if I said anything to hurt you. I was a stupid kid, blah, 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 blah. And I'll always miss you and I'll always love you. We don't, You may not get the chance with that when we're dealing on a mental health side. And since I've done those two slides, the difference when people will come up afterwards and go, you know what? I got to be honest with you, Pat, I didn't really get it, get it about it being physical until you put those slides up and I went, oh my God, I got it. The light bulb just went on. Now, fast forward, that's in 2014. In 2016, I had every intention of retiring. I was going to turn 60. The oldest pub in Ireland is called Sean's Pub. And Eileen and I were going to be sitting in there and I was going to raise a pint of Guinness and go, I'm done. In January of 2016, she was diagnosed with geoblastoma stage four brain cancer, inoperable, nine tumors in her brain, and no hope that she was ever going to get better. And I remember sitting on the bed in our bedroom when the ER called and said, you need to get in here, and just starting to sob. And I was like, did we know? Did we know? Why did we pick that? And I always wondered, did somebody whisper in my ear and go get ready? Because what you were talking about is about to happen, and I watched it. I watched her fight with the same courage as Sean. I watched the, the, her start to waste away the way he did, except the difference was with the cancer, you could see it. You could never see it on Sean if he walked in a room, but you could see it and the pain and the struggle and the ultimate that I took a vow when I got married, I was gonna protect my wife and I was gonna protect our kids. And I buried a wife and I buried a son. And I live with the fact that even though logically I can say, these were diseases. You, what do you, you're not God. You couldn't cure them. I still live with the fact I didn't protect them. Part of that cape struggle that I'll probably take to the grave until I get a chance to go see them again. But it makes it real for people and it made it real for me. And when I tie those journeys in now and the pain, now everybody's light bulb goes on. And I feel like, God, I didn't want to sacrifice their lives, but neither one of them died in vain. They died to give back to keep that going so that somebody else may be more likely to come forward in either arena, but certainly hopefully in the mental health arena to go, I don't want to get to be terminal. I want to get better. I'm so sorry, Pat. I mean, it just the, again, like I said, the personal side alone is just devastating to hear your story. And then you add again, you know, a full career in the fire service. What did you use personally 
for your own mental health, you know, losing Sean and then losing Eileen? I can tell you that I was the second time I learned. So obviously it was a whole lot easier to talk about it. And from the very beginning, from diagnosis, incredible support from Eileen's family, the Madden family, huge family who came and supported her friends. Literally, we never, ever had a time where she wasn't with once she became where she needed bed and she needed wheelchair and whatever, where there wasn't a friend that stayed in the end with people staying overnight because that hurt my back lifting her and I couldn't lift her anymore. And the the, the love and support and the constant communication Um my niece encouraged me. She said, you can't send out 100 emails to all these people. So use Caring Bridge. Use, use this, this vehicle to be able to just kind of educate people daily or weekly on how her condition is. And so I wrote. Um, and it was therapeutic for me. As, as much as I would sob through what I wrote, it was like – and people hung on to that. They, they said it, it was invaluable to feel like they were part of the journey because they felt helpless. But the other part that was absolutely the number one for me was I – was my faith. I truly believe, like my picture of heaven, James, is my wife's got her arms around Sean and they're both smiling and they're both healthy and they're really happy that they're together in believing that they were somewhere else. So I'll, I'll finish the story on, on, an, on an upbeat, what sounds like a downbeat, but it's an upbeat for me. And again, it might be somebody listening to this may be what they need to hear. So I, I shared the story about Sean seeing my dad. So there's, we had a son getting married, Patrick. In, in November. And so the goal of the chemo and everything was to get Eileen to the wedding. And then after that, it was all bets were off. So we're 13 days away from the wedding. And my son and my wonderful daughter, future daughter-in-law, Abby, came to see my wife. And my son sat with her in the living room. And I was in the kitchen emotionally listening to this incredible discussion. He's like, Mom, have you got 13 days left in you? And she said, I didn't fight this hard to not make that wedding. So we literally were making arrangements because the wedding was downstate to get a hotel room, clear it out, put a hospital bed in it. My brother-in-law, Terry, had had souped up her wheelchair with shamrocks and green lights, and we were going to make this as positive as we could. The very next day, that was Halloween, the next day on November 1st, which in the Catholic Church is All Saints Day, I went out for a run. And I had I have an old Walkman that Sean had. My firefighters look at that and go, what the hell is that, Chief? It's pretty funny. I'm like, explain the story. And I go, mostly when I hold it, I feel him. And but the batteries, I hadn't paid any attention. So I lost all of stuff that was pre-programmed. And so I'm furious as I'm getting ready to do this run. And, and I'm trying to program stations in. And the first station that comes on is a religious station. And now I'm even more pissed. I'm like, I don't want to list any religious music. I need something that's going to get me through this run. And it's and I can't even quote it specifically. I have no idea what the song was. But all I remember, it says, when you feel like you're powerless and you can't protect anymore, drop to your knees and ask for help. So literally in the middle of this forest preserve trail, I dropped to my knees and said, God, I don't have it. I can't save her. What am I going to do? I've done it again. And got up, changed the channels, finished my run, come home. I walk in and her girlfriend was standing with her, said, there's been a change. I go, why didn't you call me? She said, no, no, she's fine. But there's been a change. You need to go in and talk to her. So I did. I walked in the bedroom and I said, hey, what's going on? I hear there's a change. She said, yeah, I'm not going to make the wedding. I went, wait a minute, we just had this conversation last night and you you said, um, yeah, no, you can tell people I'm going to make my transition. I go, what happened? She said, I saw Sean. I go, where did you see Sean? And she pointed to the foot of the bed. And I go, how did he look? And it had been 10 years at this point. She goes, Pat, he was beaming. He was healthy. He was happy. I was like, okay, that's great. Did he say something to you? 
And she said, yeah, he said, mom, I'm coming to get you. And three days later, she passed. And there's no doubt I held her hand when she took her last breath. He had a hold of the other hand. And she went over with him. And if I didn't believe my dad, her, and Sean, all of them were someplace, I'm thinking that whole thought about taking your life would have come on my radar again. And I can honestly say after Sean died, I had one of Eileen's friends call me and said, I just need to do what you tell people to do. I'm going to ask you straight out. Are you thinking about killing yourself? And I said, "Mm, no, but if you told me tomorrow I was going to be dead in the morning, I'd throw a party. So that faith is what's kept me going. And then the support of friends and family and and feeling like I need to move forward with my life and it's okay to be happy and have relationships and got me there. But in those darkest moments, if I, if I didn't have my faith, I'd be screwed. That's just such a, an incredibly powerful story. And, and with both of them, with Sean and Eileen, the, the effect that they had in, in their lives and then obviously the knock-on effect that we're having this conversation now, it's going to be listened to around the world, around planet Earth, is, is just... It's incredible. And I had a gentleman on uh, twice now, Dr. BJ Miller, who's a hospice physician. And he talks about the the only time he really saw like a struggle before someone would pass was if there was regret. You know, I didn't do enough with my life. And and it seems like, you know, with Sean seeing your father and then with Eileen seeing Sean, you know, how, how amazing the that that was so apparent and so vivid in, in, in each of these two, two chapters. Cause I believe it. I'm not, you know, of any specific organized faith, but I think it takes a certain amount of arrogance to think that we just manifest and then poof back in and, and that's it, that this is all for nothing. So I believe, I mean, there has to be somewhere else, you know, we're an energy. And I think that biologically, I heard someone um, say that in three years, every single cell in the human body is new. But the consciousness, the spirit doesn't change. You don't every three years go, oh, now I'm, you know, this different person. No. So from whatever your beliefs are, I think there's there's so many powerful moments. I've had, you know, moments where my wife smelt my my grandfather's pipe smoke. She didn't even know he smoked a pipe. You know, I've had all these things where, where I've had a similar experience. And you know, obviously, it's it's not going to stop the pain of losing your loved one, but but to know, especially like like Aileen was saying, that Sean is happy now, that she's right. you know, you see, uh, my my grandfather passed away from cancer as well, and at the end, you want them to go. The body has betrayed them, and you're like, just you know, let them go, let them be be free again. So, I mean, as heart wrenching as a story is, it's a beautiful, beautiful story as well. Well, and it gave me great comfort because we had, so we had a wake on a Monday, a funeral on a Tuesday, a wedding rehearsal dinner on a Friday and a wedding on a Saturday. And Eileen said to me the day before she passed, she said, you can't be sad at that wedding. Everybody will watch you and they will cue off you. And it's not fair to Abby. This year should have been all about her and it was all about me. So this is what you, I said, honey, I've been married to you for 35 years and you've asked some pretty difficult things, but this one tops the cake. I go, <laughs> I don't know that I can do that. And she said, I'll help you. I go, you're going to have to, because I don't think I can do it. And we made it through what was an amazing 
wedding, both families incredibly. I mean, my sons-in-laws are amazing people. Everybody jumped in because they knew what this meant, this day meant. All of Eileen's friends were like, we are not going to let this day be sad because she is free and happy. And she loved to dance. She married the wrong guy because I can't dance worth a, a dance. <laughs> Everybody on that floor, the DJ said to me, he goes, I've never seen this kind of energy. I've been doing weddings for 20 years and the energy out here is just not normal. And I go, yeah, it's because she's out there. So it, it really does keep you going and it's it's what drives me to when I do the talks to just go people go I don't know how you can get up there and do that I go I don't I go I've got all those firefighters who lost their lives standing behind me going you need to talk about this and I've got my dad my son and my wife who used to stand in the back every time I did the presentation she was the lady in white who stood that's what she did go I've got them all now but they're behind me and they're going you can do this and that's how the message ends up getting there yeah and and I don't think there's any way to honor the fallen other than to use that for change, you know, whether it's cancer research or mental health or, you know, whatever it is. And, and I talk about that a lot. Like, if you bury that under the carpet, you've dishonored the very memory of that person. But if you use that death as, as a learning experience, like we lose a firefighter in a class. We had two firefighters killed in Orange County. And, you know, there's an there's actual entire bill now in their name um for to remind us to to pull ceiling when we go in and also a placard that shows the construction of a building you know so that's how you honor the fallen is is you keep their memory alive and then if it's something that you can change and obviously in in their memory they were both a huge part of of the mental health journey that you've been on and, and teaching so many of us um that's how we do it but if we ignore it the same way as if we ignore the mental health issues that we have not only are we not changing anything, but you're, it's a huge disrespect and dishonor to the people that we did lose. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's basically saying that if you don't do something with that loss and the tragedy, you've kind of written off the purpose of their lives and the purpose of what they went through as opposed to going, their lives were incredibly meaningful, whether it's a child who only lives to five or whether it's a mom who lives to 95 you're taking their lives and going, it, they went the path they were supposed to go. You were supposed to learn from them. And if you didn't, shame on you because they did their job. You're not doing yours. And if you carry it on, they they do have eternal life even here on earth because people, I always say at the end of my talk, I won't know whether you did a damn thing about what I said when you walk out of here. I, most of you I will never see again. But I go, they'll know. I said, so you're part of Sean and Eileen's team and I expect you to go out there and be disciples about what they were doing. And if you do that, I'll be fine because you don't want to piss them off. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, speaking of, of you know the change, you and I actually met at the Rosecrans Symposium um, with Dan DeGrice and Dana was the one that introduced us. Um, so I'd just love to hear your, your insight on that because I thought it was an incredible event and I want to give it some more exposure in this conversation as well. I, I what I found in so here's the irony I told you about that Sean went to a went to a treatment facility when he had the drug addiction. Well, it was Rosecrans, which is where the Florian program currently exists. And Dan reached out to me. Another one of those meant to be's was we were trying to put together the Chicago Fire Department had a wonderful family focused day where they would invite everybody from the department and their significant others and families to have kind of a 
festival atmosphere, but have a number of vendors who were there that provided mental health services for families. So they could kind of just pick up a card anonymously or hear about it. And if they needed to follow up, they could. And we were trying to replicate it in the suburbs. And as usual, I, I thought things were a lot simpler than they were. And so Dan got invited to come to this meeting and I had just used his video where they had lost a number of Chicago firefighters in one year to suicide. And Dan had gone on TV and had shared the, the pain of this and also the struggles his dad had gone through. And I thought, God, it's a powerful guy. So I would use the video in Sean's class. And then all of a sudden we're having this meeting. This guy walks in. I go, I know you. And he's like, well, I don't know you. I go, well, I use your video. And it's like he sat down within five minutes. But you know what? You guys are, think this is really easy, don't you? This, this family focus day is tough. And we started talking about things. And then we got invited out to the National Fire Academy and and started talking about mental health and the challenges. And Dan was on this mission that he was going to have somebody, a, a treatment facility that was going to have a first responder, a firefighter specific program. And the next thing, there's this reach out to me going, would you ever want to sit on a committee that would be part of this? And I'm like, oh God, that's perfect. That's what we needed. It's at a place called Rosecrans. I'm going, where? Like Rosecrans. I went, do you know where that is? I go, yeah, I know right where that is. And I always say that was meant to put our paths together. And so the the symposium that that, that Rosecrans sponsors and and talks about, and now there are a number of treatment facilities that are that are turning up. The IAFF has an incredibly powerful one, um, and others. The program is identified to bring people in who are interested in doing peer support, to bring counselors in who are interested in going into this field. Because believe it or not, I've talked to some counselors who goes, I wouldn't touch you guys with a ten foot pole. I respect the fact that you're right. We got to understand your culture, but your culture is so complicated and frightening to me. I would need my own constant therapist to sit and listen to you, the stories of the trauma your people go through on a regular basis. Well, good. I respect your honesty and we don't want you treating our people because that's exactly the problem. So, so Dan brings people together that have the passion that want to be involved in this that tell the story. Mine's more like an awareness. Like I said, I got a degree in psychology and that, that it has nothing to do with any of this. But so there's an awareness. Then you bring the people who've got the passion for it, like you do. They've got the communication and ability to spread the messages you do, then brings the trained people in to go, hey, this is what this disease is really like. And here's the physical components of it. Here's how you can treat it. Here's what you can do with your EAP. Here's how you can put a peer support group together. And instead of going, this elephant's too big, we can't take a bite out of it. Those symposiums provide the way to say, here's how you eat the elephant over the next five years. Here's what the little piece that you eat today and here's the piece you eat tomorrow. And it makes it much more objective and doesn't make seem like it's overwhelming. And finally, they bring in people who just inspire you, that, that tell their stories of resilience. And you go, by God, you made it. And another one of these reasons that what you went through is not going to go in vain because I'm going to take your story and parts of it and I'm going to help fight my fight too. And the more I always think of it, and I think of it only in the United States now, but it could be around the world. When you have those little pins on a map where people usually put it on where they've gone to vacation, I'm like, wouldn't it be wonderful if the map of the United States was covered in pins and every one of those pins was a person in an area that was fighting for the mental health of their families and their first responders? We we would kick the shit out of this a lot faster than what we're doing right now. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And Rosecrans was, I mean, I, I would say it's the best conference I've ever been to. I've, I've been to some great fire conferences, but like you said, that that combination of of true clinicians, people with incredibly powerful stories. Um, you know, Sarah, Sarah Yenke, her 
her piece was like a comedy show. It was it was oh fantastic. I was it was. <laughs> so, but it was just so much fun. And then in between, everyone's you know talking and um, yeah. I mean, if for everyone listening, if you haven't been yet, I know it changes from place to place. I I couldn't recommend it more. It was so so powerful. And and obviously, you and I met. I've got Sally coming on um, very soon. Uh, and then some more people down the road as well. So such a great networking tool and, you know, a group of people that are all sitting side by side going, we get it and we're going to be part of the change. Yeah. And, and the other thing that's always that has really inspired me was looking around at the age of people in the group, because you've got young people who are are passionate about this now and go, well, why can't we? And that's the same thing we went through when people tried to introduce physical fitness. It's the same thing we went through when people tried to introduce that you're going to do cancer prevention. It's the same thing now in the mental health. Is you've, it's got to be driven from top to bottom throughout an organization. But that young next generation, if they go, we are going to normalize this and we're going to tackle it and we're going to put it in a box and do what we need to do with it. And everybody will understand what they need to do then we will move as far ahead as we have with physical fitness and as far as we're moving with cancer. It won't be this anomaly of, yeah, well, we can't tackle that one. Yeah, you can, because the people who care, they're driving it and they are not going to stop until they make sure that they truly are taking care of their brothers and sisters the way they should. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. There's some pissed off firefighters out there and I'm certainly one of them. Um, okay, so I want to transition to some closing questions because we've been talking for well over two hours. So thank you so much for being so generous. And I just wanted, you know, the, the the story to unfold the in, in its uh i guess fullness would that be the right word but but um so i'm glad that we were able to really expand on all the areas and you were able to tell sean and eileen's story properly um so the first question i love to ask is there a book that you recommend it can be what we've discussed or something completely different you know i i'm i guess for resiliency one of the books that i read was a plan b um, and it deals with it's it's the story of a of a young mom and uh, wife who lost her husband. They went away on a vacation and and they passed away. Her husband passed away suddenly on this vacation. And her journey of going through and dealing with the, the therapy of how to get through this and what to do. And the, and the psychologist sitting with her and going, "Well, give me the ideal night that you would have tonight." And she was like, "Well, we, we have a parent teacher conference and." Um, my husband would be sitting next to me and we'd be in the room and we'd hear how wonderful our children are doing. And well, that's good. That's plan A. Plan A is not possible anymore. So what's your plan B? And I think for me, that was a light bulb that went on and said, okay, you can't, all those things that were, and you were blessed to have, I was blessed to have Sean for almost 21 years. I was blessed to have 35 years of marriage to a saint who lived with me. Um, instead of trying to hang on to that because I can't anymore, I've got to be okay with the fact that I'll see him later, but I can't, I don't have that now is what's my plan B. And for most of us, we don't have a plan B, especially with life. And so being open to, there are other things that you can do. There are other ways that you can love. There are other ways that you can move forward. Um, a lot of people that sit in, in my position are told you need to move on and, um, I saw a TED talk and I'm blanking now on the, on the young lady's name, but she, she had gone through a horrific where she lost a young husband. She was pregnant at the time, lost the baby, lost a, her mom or somebody recently. And, but she was remarried now and very happy four years later. And she said, you know, I got really freaking sick and tired of people telling me you need to move on. Cause she goes, moving on to me meant 
that I left behind every good thing I had. She said, my second husband fell in love with me because of how my first husband and I developed what he did to be a part of me. That's why he fell in love with me. And so I'm moving forward because I need to. But when I move forward, it means I can bring all those good things with me. And I'm going to do that. And I went between plan B and that video, it gave me permission to go, I need to move forward. And I've always got to be thinking, what's your plan B? So those are probably two of the most powerful things that hit me. Yeah, no, that sounds like a a great book for everyone to read. And and the concept is, you know, spot on. I mean, in in many things in life, you know, we we want it to be one way, but that's not always the case. I mean, I would love for my family unit to be together. I don't want to be with that particular woman anymore, but I hate the fact that my son has to bounce from house to house. But the reality is that's not the way it's going to be anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, you can apply that to so many elements of life. Absolutely. The other one I I recently read was Dare to Lead with Brene Brown. And it talked a lot about vulnerability and about, and, and this is more in the leadership side, but it absolutely fits into the mental health realm of, be looking at yourself in the mirror and realizing that you're not perfect and that you've got things that you need to work on and that, that those aren't shortcomings, that they're just part of the human condition and that it's okay to expose that to your people. And I think what it enforced for me was I should have been more human to my folks when Sean was going through what he went through. And if I had been, I would have, as I said, I think created a much more healthy culture about what mental health was. It didn't have to be a tragedy in order for that door to open. And, um, so that's another one that I thought was I just finished recently was pretty powerful. Yeah, I would love to try and get her on one day. I know she's uh, she does podcasts, but just a select few. Um, but uh, as this grows, I'm hoping that one day I'll be able to lure her onto the show as well. That's pretty cool. I think you guys would be a great combination from what I read. Yeah, no, we definitely have a good discussion. I, I'm sure. Um, so same question, but a movie now. What's one of your favorite movies? Well, and I think I, I think I hit on it. I, well, two. And again, I'm a sappy guy and I love baseball. So the natural from that standpoint of that one person can have, even even when the entire crowd is, you look like you're the only one in the crowd that believes it. Um, if you stand up for it, it can have an incredible impact on not just a person, but maybe an entire situation. So don't ever, ever sell yourself short. I always, it drives me crazy and I jump people right away when they say, well, I'm just a firefighter. I'm like, well, what do you think I am? I go, that's when I am too. I go, my rank happens to be chief. Eileen would always introduce me at family parties and somebody would go, what's your husband do for a living? He's a firefighter. And then like an hour later, they go, hey, you didn't tell me he was the fire chief. She goes, that's not what he does. That's what he's called in big, huge difference. So that one really resonates with me now about, about stand up so other people won't fail. And the other one, honestly, is Field of Dreams. It's like y- you are living this pain and sometimes you've got to, and there's a quote in, actually in Benet Brown's book about, you know, you've got to, you've got to own the story and owning that pain and getting to a point of where you can take it and make it into a positive is the other thing. So when people walk out, I mean, I, I always, I know what's going to happen at the end of that movie and I always ball because I think about, yeah, would I love to play catch with my dad one more time? What an incredible thing that would be for me, just for me, but it also led me to that hope of, yeah, there's, there is something out there that you don't know and you can't see, but just because you can't, you can hang on to that and it can drive you to do positive things. And you're going to go through pain, try to own the pain, try to make as positive as you can out of that, and then keep pushing forward. 
and you will impact people that you never know that you did until it's all over with. It's how we always listen. It's unfortunately that you can't actually have your wake while you're here because every time I've been to a wake, I've heard a family say, I was told an amazing story I never knew about the impact so-and-so and my family had on somebody. We all have that. It's just a matter of you put yourself out there in order to do it. You never know how many you're going to impact. No, I, I agree. And that movie, Build It, They Will Come, I mean, that phrase yes. is so pertinent. You, you're staring at this abyss and you have the burning desire to change mental health, physical health, fitness, you know, the, the something in your kid's school, whatever it is. When you take that first step, you're not going to have, unless you're The Rock, <laughs> you're not going to have a million people suddenly react to it. One of my friends, Chad, who was on the show, he started um, uh, doing what he calls Recovery Ward, and he does a class in a CrossFit gym for people that are recovering. And, you know, he was down that journey now. He's been clean for well over a year. And, you know, he's, he, he did the first one, and I think there was like five people there. You know, and the next one... This, and, and, and again, firstly, you're impacting the five. It doesn't matter how many there are, but trusting that if you are doing something good in the world, you know, it, it, the initial impact may not be encouraging, but just believe in it and build it. They will come. If you keep mm -hmm. pushing, it will make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I do think that last scene, when you see all those lights coming in, you're just like, okay, what are those lights? Those are all people and lives who are searching and they're searching to have something they can hold on to that they can move in a positive direction. And that's, I think that's what our message is for the fire services. You can do it. You, you can be that one person, you can start that movement and the people you're going to save, you may not ever know. It's kind of like doing public education. You do all these public education and, and the children who don't get hit by a car, the families who do get out, the people who do have smoked it. We never really know who numbers wise we save, but that's not important. We know we're doing it, and this fits right into that same wheelhouse to me. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, on the movie theme, is there a documentary that you've seen that you love? Oh, boy. I have to think about that. Um, wow. I'm blanking at this point. I'm sure there has been, but I'm, I'm – I'm kind of emotionally spent at this point on my brain. Is no, 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 no problem. You've already given me two movies. That's fine. Um, okay, so then the next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Well, I, um, you've had Dan on, who would be the first one that I would absolutely be talking about. Um, the Illinois Fire Service Institute, the, the director there is Colonel Royal Mortensen. Um he would really be a powerful person to talk to because when um, he put together, when he took over there in 2012, one of the challenges we hit him with was we, we do all this leadership training at the Institute and it's amazing, all these fire officer certifications, but really we don't, we don't really teach people how to lead. We don't talk about when the guy walks in and says, you know, my wife just filed for divorce. We don't, we don't talk about how to handle the problems that really are the big problems in the firehouse. And he put together this amazing program based kind of on, on truly on what he did for training in the, in the military. And one of the components that I kind of pushed back on after it was put together was there's not enough mental health in here. He's like, geez, Pat, will you slow down? I just need to kind of crawl before I start walking here. It's coming. I, and, and he became a true believer and has built this great training re resiliency model, not just now in that class, but has built it into all sorts of different classes 
like rope rescue or whatever, you're still going to get a component of it. Even like, what the hell does that have to do with rope rescue? You're going to get it no matter what. And some standalone things, Chief James Moore is now running that program and it's just kicking butt. And it's powerful for me to see because he literally called me two days after Eileen passed and he knew Eileen and said, hey, you know what we talked about? I thought the timing's just right. I'm going to make that happen. And he has been an incredible advocate, powerful speaker, a powerful history in the military, um, and just has done amazing stuff for the fire service. And he'll be the first to tell you and has said, I struggled with looking at mental health the way you do, by the way I was trained and everything. He goes, but I get it. And I see what needs to be done and I'm doing something about it. So he would be um, somebody I would certainly recommend. You would enjoy speaking to him. He's just a great man on top of the other things he's accomplished. Excellent. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. Absolutely love to. Um, okay, so the last thing before we talk about where people can find you is what do you do to decompress? So I was a runner. That was really, really important to me. And um, then after Eileen passed, the back doctor was like, no, nah, you're done. I ran a couple of marathons and I, and I really liked to go. When I was hurting so bad during her disease, I would just go out for a run, cry and pray pretty much. Um, so they're like, you can't do that, which really kind of depressed me. So um, I had a friend of mine who's become an incredibly important person in my life who said, have you ever ridden and I go I'm like fifth grade like riding a bike and like no like ride like you can challenge yourself physically riding it doesn't and it won't take the impact on your back and whatever so she started me on and doing you know because she said you're dumb enough that you're going to go out there the first time ride 25 miles not real smart with your back so let's do this in incrementally and she kind of trained me into doing it so now I ride and it's it's Unfortunately, the weather in Illinois is not conducive to that year round, but I do that and it, it does give me some of that freedom where I'm out there, I'm, I'm in the wind, I'm in the air. I can, If it's a date, I just want to act like I'm 62 and pedal along at four miles an hour, I can. Or if I want to pretend I'm 25 for you know 30 seconds, I could push it. And it, I can feel it when I'm done. I feel like, okay, so the physical fitness is for me is still the best thing that I can do it when it's in the winter like now I go upstairs in the stationary bike in the gym and it's as boring as hell but I try to give myself different challenges to do in um, lifting weights and so the physical part is when I miss that I can tell like if I'm on the road and I miss it and even if just for a couple of days I'm more crabby and I don't have the energy and I um, and I'll reach out and do that when I'm struggling and that has always been my my go-to Brilliant. Now I need to send you uh, a video. The foundation training I talked about that I fixed my back with is incredible. And actually one of the most famous athletes that swore by it was Lance Armstrong. So, you know, big cyclist, but Kelly Slater, I mean, loads and loads of very well-known people, a really, really very simple practice. You basically just stand there and do do a series of poses and, and you do it for literally 10, 15 minutes. Um, but I'll send that to you because that I was absolutely no problem. It was a game changer with my back. So I will send that when we're done. So then the very last thing then. So if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you online? Probably the easiest thing right now. And we're actually, I'm working with somebody that wants to put together a, I've always been real reticent about, Hey, I'm nobody special. So it's like, oh, you should have your own webpage. You should have your own, you know, and I haven't, I haven't done that. And that's my own fault. I've kind of gone, no, it's, there's a lot more important people that need to be reached out to than me. And so somebody said, well, you should put together a webpage. So we're kind of working on it. But right now, honestly, the easiest way to get to me is to just email me. 
Um, and I get questions all the time. It'll, it's where people will reach out and ask if they wanted somebody to speak or if they're looking for a policy in their department or just looking for a little bit of information or to teach a completely different class. Not everything that I, I do is, is, is on the mental health. Some of it's just basic leadership of which that's a big part, um, is I just had them email me. So, so my email address, um, the personal one is P Kenny K E N N Y. I is in Isaac, F is in Frank, C is in Charles, A is in Adam at gmail.com. So pkennyifca at gmail.com. And for now, that's the best way until everything else kind of gets up and running. And then I'll have another way for them um, to reach out. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I just want to say thank you again. It's been two and a half hours. And, you know, we we talked before. I'm very cognizant. Of, and, you know, there's yourself, um, Lionel Crowder was another person. Every time you are going and traveling and standing in front of a group and telling your story, as much of an effect as it's having, as you know, as we talked about, it is taking a piece of you, you know, and and it's one of those things where, as an audience member, you you kind of looking like it's in a way there must be a part of it that that's pulling you back from moving forward from it because you're having to retell the story over and over again. And I know that you're very proud of the journey, and there's so much for us to learn, the listener. But um, I'm just so grateful that you were willing to tell the story again. And I know that now this is going to sit there in the cloud, in cyberspace, whatever you want to call it. And people can access this all over the world today, a year from now, 10 years from now. So I just want to thank you for your vulnerability, your honesty, and, and your courage to tell what must be a very, very painful story. But I do know that it is going to affect thousands of lives. Why well, I, I sincerely appreciate the forum. I think the discussion we had beforehand, just talking about that, um, it, this story maybe I don't know how many more times I'll tell the story, but I, I think for this in this mode, the way we're in in this medium and the way that people access and your reputation, um, I hope that it'll get out there for people and that somebody listening to it, whether they need the, the mental health advice, the leadership advice, or they just need that hope of their faith. Um, that when they listen, they go, well, I'm, I got something out of this and I feel like I know Sean and Eileen and, and yeah, I'm going to carry on their mission. And that would be, that would empower me like you wouldn't believe. Absolutely. And for everyone listening, once you've heard this, make sure you share it for God's sake, <laughs> please. Because yeah, this needs to be heard. Well, again, Pat, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm glad our paths crossed. That was a meant to be also. Thanks, James. <laughs>